Hey folks, Shag here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, there's a couple of deals on InStockTrades that I noticed just recently that sort of relate to this issue of Who's Who, thought I'd let you know about. First on one is Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Volume 1 Trade Paperback. Now this trade collects the three-issue miniseries from 1981 called Tales of the Green Lantern Corps. Also included are backup core stories from Green Lantern 148, 151 to 54, 161, 162, 164 to 167. Now in this you're going to get stories from Mike W. Barr, Len Wein, Paul Kupperberg, Kurt Busiek, Todd Klein, Joe Statton, Dave Gibbons, Carmen Infantino, and more. Amazing stuff. It's 160 pages. Normally, this book goes for 19.99, but right now you can save 45% and get this book for only $10.99 when you order it from InStockTrades.com. Another deal you can find is Showcase Presents Green Arrow Volume One Trade Paperback. Now, this volume reprints Green Arrow's Silver Age Adventures from Adventure Comics number 250 to 266, 268 to 69. Brave and the Bold, 50, 71, and 85, Justice League of America, number 4, and World's Finest, 95 to 140. It's insane. It's 528 pages. you got writers such as Jack Miller, Ed Heron, Gardner Fox, Bob Haney, art by Jack Kirby, George Papp, Mike Sikowski, Neil Adams, and more. I mean, this thing, jam-packed. Normally, the showcase is going to go for $16.99, but right now you can save 45% and get this book for only $9.34. And remember, if you order uh, $50 or more, you get free shipping. So, for all these and all and your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Fitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from the AquamanShrine.com. How you doing, Rob? I'm, I'm good, Shag. I'm, I'm green with envy. Green. Oh. I don't. I don't. I don't have any like second part of that joke to, for it to make any sense. I just wanted to use it because of this issue. <laughs> it's terrible. It is. What a way to start the show, folks. Uh, <laughs> we're really excited about this. It has been a month and a half, I think, almost two months since we've covered Who's Who, and uh, we are totally jazzed because, folks, for me personally, this is one of my favorite issues. I've got an anecdote about it. You say that about every issue. No, 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 sir. No, sir. I've got an anecdote that I'm going to share in just a second here about why this is one of my absolute favorite issues. So, but first, folks, I just want to welcome you back. If this is your first time listening to one of our Who's Who podcasts, just to give you a little bit of history on the Who's Who series, it is a, it's a 26-issue series that was published back in 1985, 1986, and it celebrated the 50th anniversary of DC Comics. Now, it ran in parallel with Crisis on Infinite Earths, which had premiered just a month before it. Uh, it's an alphabet, 
alphabetical listing of all the characters of the DC Universe. And so this issue, we get into the G's, which maybe you know has something to do with the color green, thanks to <laughs> Rob's ridiculous joke. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert, that's right. Uh, the cover is a jam of all the characters having a big party. There's no advertisements in these comics, which are fantastic. I think it's so cool. You, so you get a whole 32 pages for $1 with no ads. Pretty sweet back then. Wish I could get a comic for 32 pages and $1 nowadays with no ads. But anyway, uh, now our goal is for you not to have to have the comics in front of you. We do publish some of the pages over on our Tumblr, which is – what's that Tumblr site, Ron? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. So we'll publish maybe, I don't know, 10 pages out there. You know, we're not going to republish the whole book because that's just not cool. But we are going to publish a number of pages. So check that out over on our Tumblr. And now when we get into the entries, you'll hear us. We'll talk about their uh, their history, their personal data, such as, you know, their name, occupation, marital status, all that stuff, and their powers and weapons, and then the drawing. So you'll hear you'll hear a lot of us go through that. And in the entries, each one of their drawings has a central front image that's in color. And then the background in a single color, whether it be red or green or blue or whatever, is a lot of different types of drawings, sort of telling the background and the history of the character. We call it uh, surprint, which is absolutely not the right term, but, <laughs> but it's become part of our lexicon, so we just deal with it. Uh, you usually get a close-up of the character without, um, without their mask in the background also, which is kind of cool. Um, also worth mentioning are these yellow bubbles. You want to explain the yellow bubbles real quick, Rob? Uh, the yellow bubbles uh, is uh, was Neil Posner's who did the... DC staffer who did the graphic design for the series, uh, their little background element, the yellow dots, they're, they're meant to represent the dot matrix printing of uh, comic books. I mean, all comic book colors made up of tiny little dots. So I think that was Neil's little homage to sort of a, a classic form of comic book printing. Now, the yellows sort of hurts the eyes a little bit. A little bit. But it's become such a staple of who's who that I just absolutely love it. Absolutely mm-hmm. love it. Now, if again, if this is your first time stumbling across a Who's Who podcast, you can find back issues of our podcasts, or back episodes, I guess you could say, of our podcast under the Fire and Water podcast feed on iTunes. However, we only have our 25 most recent shows out there. So if you want to catch all the back episodes of the Who's Who podcast, go on over to fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com. In the right-hand margin, you'll find a, a, a matrix uh, a listing every episode we've done, and you can pull all the Who's Who episodes from there so you can get caught up and enjoy these. Now, i got to tell my personal anecdote here, dude. I'll keep it short, but here's the deal. This issue was my first Who's Who. So it's sort of like, you know, you never forget your first. Well, <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> uh, back in <clears throat> the summer of 1985, uh, we were switching houses. We were moving from one house to another. And You're on the run ha- from the law. Uh, we'll just go with that. That's more okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we were, we were, in, and we were in hiding from, from, the, from the man. And uh, we, the, the new house we were going to wasn't ready yet. So we had to stay in a hotel. And we were in a hotel for, in my mind, it was like two months. Realistically, you know, probably two weeks. I was 13 years old. Who knows, you know? Anyway, so um, my mother, in order to keep me busy, bought me some comic books. And she said, uh, and I told the story, similar story about Marvel Saga and things like that. But she told me, you need to get some comics that will keep you busy. So we were in the store. I came across Who's Who. Like, wow, there are a lot of words to read. (laughs) (laughs) So I bought, this was my first issue. And let me tell you. What a first issue. Oh, my gosh, to read. You know, I, I was aware of Green Lantern, certainly, from, you know, the Super Friends and stuff like that. But to learn about the whole world of Green Lantern, you know, just in one sitting, blew me absolutely away. 
And in this, you know, in this thing, you get tons of teams. You get, you know, like the Doom Patrol, the Outsiders, Teen Titans, Global Guardians, um, you know, the Green Lantern universe, the Omega Man, all the, the All-Star Squadron. All these are referenced throughout here. So it really gave me a window into the bigger DC universe. I learned about war comics. Uh, I learned about Flash, Flash, some of the Flash's rogues. I learned about Green Arrow. I mean, I'm sorry I'm spoiling who's in the issue. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's the letter G. You're probably going to figure most of that out. But it just was such an exposure to the DC universe. And to this day, I mean, a lot of my Green Lantern fascination, I think, comes from reading this comic. Wow. Just a great first issue, and it, it makes me so happy. And uh, woo, I'm excited. <laughs> And that's what it was supposed to do, you know? It was supposed to get people excited about uh, the DC Universe, at least for one little boy <laughs> in the 1980s. It worked perfectly. That's so true. Yeah, I'm, you know, that's a good point. So, folks, all right, so set your Wayback Machine to August 15th, 1985. That's the day this comic hit the shelves. Now, it's cover dated November 1985 because, you know, there's always this couple months gap in comic books, the way they publish them like that. But check this out. We recently stumbled across something, um, thanks to Jim Shoot, the big, was it Jim, the big man shooter, or whatever he goes by? Uh, I don't know what that guy, I think, <laughs> I think it depends on what you call. Yeah, it's true. He released on his blog a couple of years ago a cor- uh, an old co- correspondence from the 85, from a, a research company that they had hired at Marvel to do some research on DC sales. Uh, I guess, if I understand correctly, DC was considering buying I'm sorry, Marvel was considering buying some of either DC or DC's properties like Superman. Really? Yeah, I know. I, I, I don't have anything to back that up. That's what I read somewhere on the internet, so it's got to be true. Yeah. So. <laughs> but it, these, this is a, literally a memo, and I'll put this up on the Tumblr for people to see. It's literally a memo, memo to Jim Shooter, and it lists their analysis of the DC comic sales from this particular month, from the November 85 cover-dated issues. And it lists what they call the draw – which is supposedly how many issues were ordered, the, comp- the com- compiled order number based on all the different vendors that carry these comics, and then it lists what they believe their sell-through was. Now, there's a lot of question on these sell-through numbers because some people think that they don't represent the direct market. Some people think that there was a lot of fictitious you know, returns where people would just rip off the covers and mail them back even though they were selling the comics. So I, I don't know, I, and I question the sales numbers just looking at them, but the important thing here is if nothing else, you can compare the comics to each other. The number one selling DC comic, according to this, in November, cover dated November 85, was Crisis on Infinite Earths. No surprise there, right? So it would have been Crisis number uh, 10, actually. Ooh, that's where the whole universe got reset, if I remember right. Number two selling DC comic, Who's Who. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I didn't I know Who's Who sold that well. I had no idea. According to this, the draw, which again is the order number, compiled order number from all the different retailers and vendors and distributors, 216,200. Look at that. That's amazing. Spider-Man doesn't sell that much now. Oh, jeez. And and you got to know that that number's short because this is a research company that, you know, it's at least 216,000. It could, you know, if they missed anybody, it's more. So it's at at a minimum, it's 216,000. That's wild. Now, that beat Superman, that beat Teen Titans, that beat DC Comics Presents, you know. Firestorm's pretty high up the list, by the way, but anyway. Yeah, that's you were crowing episode. about that, yeah. Yes, I was. But, it, you know, it beat every other DC comic. That's insane. You know, um, actually, you know what? There's one more. I don't know why it's listed at the bottom. I just realized this. It appears that Superpowers sold just a tiny bit more than Who's Who. Interesting. Why is it at the bottom? Weird. Anyway, uh, oh, because uh, 
they have no estimated final sales that was available. Whatever. So it says 216,000 ordered. Now it claims the sale through was only 62,500. There's no way that's right. I mean, think about it. Retailers are not going to continue to order that many copies by issue nine, knowing that they're getting rid of that much. Yeah, that's like I, yeah, that's like twenty five percent sell through. So yeah, yeah, twenty eight point nine to be exact. So oh, there, I, 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 I just like everyone else, I question these sales through figures because um, I mean you know, but whatever. Either way, uh, getting two hundred sixteen thousand ordered, amazing. So just wanted to mention that because it just it came out a month or two ago and it happens to relate to this exact issue. So I thought that was worth uh, talking about. Also, we're talking about uh, just kind of a funny thing. You know, we 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 joke on the show a lot about how we're eventually going to get to who's who in the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, <laughs> I, I I legitimately I hope we do. I don't know how we're going to cover it because Rob is you know hates the Legion with the passion of a thousand <laughs> sons. But either way, I was in a store not too long ago and I stumbled across five issues of Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes. It was actually Books a Million. Books a Million sells back issues, uh, which is crazy. And uh, so I, I picked up each one for a buck. It was Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, issues one through five. And they look great. And they've all got these awesome Steve Lytle covers. And I put a picture on Facebook just because I thought it was interesting, you know. And uh, saying, hey, we'll cover this someday. And then out of the blue, I get a comment um, from Steve Lytle himself. <laughs> it says, my whole career is in the dollar bins. It just <laughs> broke my heart. So then there's this, this, con- this conversation between me, Rob, Steve Lytle, a number of listeners to this show, and Paul Kupperberg got in the game after a while, too. Just back and forth about how great their work is and their careers and then just different things we're pointing out. And it was amazing, all because this silly little show we record. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was great. And, and I've gotten to be Facebook friends with Steve now, which I, and I was not before. So it was, it was really great to hear these two guys whose comics I read, you know, some of them growing up, um, and get to interact with them like that. That was a lot, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was just absolutely wild, so... All right. Uh, well, I guess it's time to jump into the issue. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, we've got a cover by... Paris Collins, Dick Giordano. Thank you very much. And I, one of the things I like about this cover is they've, they've, really, they've got a treatment sort of all the way across the back. In the far back, there is a green background. And once you look closer at it, you realize it's the giant Green Lantern symbol. It's an enormously large Green Lantern symbol. And it's, you've got a lot of people flying out through the center hole of the Green Lantern circle. Um, your primary characters, which are always going to be on your right-hand side, because that's the cover that was facing, will sit on the shelves, is uh, John Stewart, Green Lantern, Geoforce, and Green Arrow. Now, there's a lot of other characters that are featured as well, but those are probably the ones that were going to sell this comic the most. I don't think the picture of Goldface down there was going to help sell <laughs> the book. N- neither was, uh, you know, Jack-O-Lantern or Gravedigger or Grimbor. Jack-O-Lantern gets pretty good real estate, though. He sure does, which made me, and you know, again, this is one of my earliest exposures to the DC Universe. I, mean, I had been reading Firestorm, and I don't know whether I had picked up Crisis yet or not. I don't remember at this point, but, um, you know, I had. I had picked, started picking up Crisis. But Jack O'Lantern was, was featured so prevalently to me, in my mind, for years, he was a major player in the DC Universe. <laughs> really? I'm serious. I know. I, know. I love kid logic like that. <laughs> Things like that. I guess Green Man's kind of got a, a central piece there, too. Mm-hmm. I guess he's, you know, I mean, he was big with it. Um, the, the, what are they called? Omega Man. Omega Man, yeah. Well, he's kind of ripped there. I thought he was like a skinny <laughs> dude. So um, there's some, some neat things worth mentioning here. Is, um, I love G.I. Robot is going at it with Gorilla Grodd. Well, I was going to say, this is, this, I'm sorry, but this is one of the few covers where it's like an all-out battle. 
most of the coverage to this point, there have either been minor squabbles between heroes and villains, or they're all just standing there peacefully amid one another. This is the first cover that's it's a full-on fight. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Yeah. Because you've got, as you said, you've got G.I. Robot pasting Grillic Rod one. You've got the Golden Age Green Lantern uh, fighting off against General Immortus. Green Arrow is shooting an arrow at somebody. I'm not exactly sure who he's shooting an arrow at, but he is. Probably the other Green Arrow. Well, Well, no, that wouldn't make sense, would it? Yeah, he's not shooting. Well, maybe he doesn't like him. Uh, (laughs) You know, you see Gizmo flying across the screen. Like I said, this is really one of the few that they're – and I love up in the top left, the Ghost Patrol is chasing after the Grim Ghost. I think that's great. I love that little detail. And, well, yeah, they're chasing after the Grim Ghost and the Ghost. Yeah, and the I, ghost. Did, I did not even catch that. That is brilliant. I love that. That's <laughs> really – and it said I, I – I, we got to talk – we got to have Bob Greenberger on the show at some point for like a big interview because I would love to know like who – did Paris Collins know enough about these characters to know that? Did they tell him that? Did they say, hey, Paris, these co- these characters do this? I would love to know who – you know whether the cover artist – like Perez, you figure Perez knew these characters well enough to know all their little quirks. But, you know, did, did somebody like Paris Collins know? I don't know. I guess we could ask him. He's on Facebook as well. So, I wonder if uh, Ed Hannigan did the, some of the designs like he did for a lot of other DC books. That's true. Then. Yeah, it might even have been – yeah, it might have been Ed Hannigan. So. Yeah. I, I do like – I think it's kind of funny how Glorious Godfrey is like hanging out in a golden glider. Like yeah. it's, it's a weird little pose. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like so, like, a, like a little 13-year-old kid like, hee. <laughs> So, um, my, my, one of my favorite bits here, though, is Alan Scott. He looks so dramatic, so action-oriented. And, you know, back then he was sort of an old dude, you know. So, uh, to, as far as, like, you know, a kid coming up. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know what, how I would have perceived him, but I think he, I think he just looks awesome. Yep, yep. So, really nice cover. Yay for Green Lanterns. All right, in we go. Uh, the entire Inside Letters page is dedicated to a... <sighs> Let's just call it what it is. Uh, a guy who lives in his parents' basement. Um, he wrote this incredibly lengthy letter, which starts off sort of like um, you think it's going to be. You know, he's kind of going for a no prize kind of thing. He's, he's finding all the little nitpicky things that you know have, have gone wrong in the who's who issues. But he comes kind of a, a d bag. Yeah, while he's exactly. Doing it. Exactly. I, we mentioned that in an earlier show that for some reason the who's who letter writers seem to really regard mistakes in Who's Who very personally and like with almost like a grudge. <laughs> and it's like, okay, the, the guys made mistakes. This is a huge series. And, but, yeah, if you read this David Bedard, if you read Mr. Bedard's letter, he's really cheesed off. And it's like he's so snotty about it. It's kind of amazing. And then the, the fact that they printed it too. <laughs> I know. I mean, for a comic that was pulling 200,000 issues, you think they got some nice letters they could have published. But, uh, or, or maybe they just felt like defending themselves. I don't know. But uh, I guess it was Len that sat there and went line by line and defended themselves. Very patient, you know? Len Wee. <laughs> yeah. So, woo, hats off to him. So, uh, you know, Bear's mentioning some of the folks involved in creating the book. Len Wein, writer-editor. Marv Wolfman, contributing editor. You know, I'm not going to read their titles. I'm just going to read their names. Uh, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Ro- Robert Greenberger, Mike Barr, Gary Cohn, um, Paul Levitz, E. Nelson Bridewell, Peter Sanderson, Todd Klein, and then you get into, like, colorists, and we always have to mention, because we think it's great, the proofreader, Brent, Brenda Pope. Gotten <laughs> for punishment. That's Brenda exactly Pope. right. Uh, and you get a pronunciation glossary, which is pretty cool, which I'm going to use right now. Uh, okay, as I do this first character, I'm just double-checking to make sure I'm going to say it right. So, The first character in the book is Garn Danuth, and I know how to say that because of the glossary. Thank you so much. He is a character from... I wish I had the glossary for this one. Uh, 
I say I say Orion. You say Arion. Arion. Okay, you're probably right. <laughs> so we need to ask right. Copperberg this. He'll, he'll tell. Well, it, it's in the pronunciation glossary of issue number one. I just need to look it up. <laughs> anyway, he is he is was the primary villain villain in Arion, which was this great sword and sorcery book that I absolutely love that Paul Copperberg wrote. Fantastic series. The art here is by Jan Dersima. And I, I don't know about you, but I think this is a gorgeous piece. I just, I couldn't be happier with the first entry in Who's Who number nine to just kick it off. Because you, you got Garn, rather than being front and center, he's sort of off to the left. And he's actually looking over at his own um, background and his own history. So the, the color pieces on the left with him standing there sort of on this scry crystal with his hand on it. And then everything else is in the single color blue, what we call, again, the uh, Serpent. Serpent. And this is an amazing close-up shot of his face that looks so evil, so maniacal, with this giant star scar on his face. It's got him battling his brother. It's got his mother and father. It's, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. Now, some of the interesting things about this character is that he lived for 100,000 years. Like, after the Orion series ended, he continued to live on for 100,000 years and ended up fighting the Justice League. Now, I don't. you, you might know your timing better than me, Rob. When did that Justice League appearance occur in relationship to the Orion series. Was, was Orion up and running by that point? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a ninth, that issue of Justice League came out in 1982, three? Uh, okay. I should know that. 1983. 1983. And um, I, uh, as I just checked the pronunciation, Orion, it's Orion. Um, uh, Orion. Okay, Orion uh, was running concurrently. So he was doing, he, he had two different characters from Orion going on at the same time. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I, I, I've mentioned it before on the show. I grew up reading Orion. Absolutely loved that book. Um, I. How did you say Wait. Tell me how to say it again. According to the pronunciation, it's Ahrion. A-H. I've been saying it right all this time? Apparently. Me, the king of mispronunciation? <laughs> I can't even say the word pronunciation. Isn't that ironic? The king of mispronunciating stuff? It's Orion. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Orion. Okay. Thank you. I feel vindicated all of a sudden. <laughs> I am energized, folks. <laughs> so, great sword and sorcery book. And I'm not a sword and sorcery guy. I'm certainly not a fantasy guy, as some listeners may know. So, this book, but it just struck the right chord with me. It was gorgeously illustrated. Really fascinating concepts. I've got a soft spot for Atlantis anyway. But Garn was a great villain. And again, when he got, when he got that scar on his face, it just made him... It, it's such the iconic look for him. Like that's how, like the background image of him. That's how I think of him, and he just looks so vicious, so evil. Now I know you didn't read the book, but just as an outsider, tell me, you know, this drawing. What is it? Does it interest you? Is it make you want to, you know, I don't know, learn more? It didn't make me want to read the book, but it is a nice listing. I mean, I like Jan Dersma's artwork a lot, and you know, it does give you. It fits a lot of history into a tight space. So, like I said, it didn't. It still didn't make me read the book. Sorry, Paul. Uh, but uh, but but it's it's a nice listing, and it features what I think is uh, probably the series' most specific base of operations, formerly a tower in the city of Thamuz in Mu, forty-five thousand years ago, currently unknown. <laughs> that is very, 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 specific. very specific. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I'm glad you mentioned the history was very fleshed out. I'm going to mention a few different um, times here uh, that some of the history is not. So this one is great when you really get a sense for the character, and I'll explain that more as we get to some of the other ones. All right. Next up, you get a two-page spread for Gemworld. This is by Ernie Cologne and Carl Kiesel. Interesting pairing between those two, because uh, as you probably know, Ernie Cologne 
had created the characters visually of Amethyst and had drawn that miniseries by himself. But then, when they get to the 1985 series, it was being inked by Carl Kiesel. So here you go. It's a nice combination of the two. Because when Carl Kiesel was inking it, I don't think it was Ernie Clone drawing it, if I remember right. So I think it's a nice to have these two together. And if I'm wrong, I'm sure 17 people will line up and tell me I'm wrong. So... Having Gary Cohn as one of the contributing writers for this issue really helped as he helped write you know, the Amethyst series. You get a, a you know, you get sort of your standard superhero comic uh, lineup on the left hand border and the right hand border, you get all these characters. You get Amethyst and Aquamarine and Diamond and Emerald and Garnet and Moonstone and Opal. <laughs> Our favorite Ruby. Dark Opal. Exactly. Ruby, Sapphire, Sard- Sardonyx. Uh, topaz and turquoise. Then you get a shot of them all sort of spread out across, you know, looking around uh you're standing together as a group. Now, Amethyst is not in the group shot, probably because she had her own entry. So, But you will see her in the surprint there with her beautiful jewel crown and, and a map. I kind of like how they have a map of Gemworld there. Now, I think the, the character designs are absolutely wonderful. I love how it's tied into mythology. Uh, and Dark Opal, as we said, is just one of the greatest design characters out of the 80s. He just looks so cool. But the entry itself didn't grabbed me all that much. Like the text, I was like reading it and I was kind of like, okay. <sighs> it's fantasy based, which is sort of ironic. I'm coming off the heels of an Orion character that I'm so excited about that this just kind of like, uh, fantasy. Okay. That's yeah. I, I didn't read Amethyst before this listing. And after this listing, that status did not change. <laughs> now I thought that the land of the gem world was actually alive. Like for some reason, maybe I misremembered that. But I see no mention of that in here, so that's probably just my bad memory. So, anyway, uh, it, visually, it's a very very pretty, if not exciting, piece. Right. There's a lot of people to fit in a tiny space, but it's well-drawn, yeah. as always, Baron Cohen. And can I say, just looking at this, I, I, got, I now have an idea on how to pitch an Amethyst TV show. I'm going to pitch it to HBO. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to pitch it to HBO, and I'm yeah. going to say it's Game of Thrones meets Girls. Oh, see, that's different than the last, because you've, you've shared this idea before, but it wasn't, it was uh, Game of Thrones meant something else, so there you go, keep changing. No, that, that was for, no, that was for New Gods. Uh, that was a New God. that was a Game of Thrones, and I forget the other thing, it was combining, so I'm just combining Game of Thrones, because that's hot. Well, I remember thing. in the 80s, it was, everything was, you know, Die Hard meets this. Right, see, Die Hard on a boat, Die Hard on, right, exactly. So. Die Hard on a bus, you know, <laughs> die, hard, die Hard in L.A., oh wait, that was Die Hard 3, so, um... I don't think it was LA. Doesn't matter. So, General We're getting Amortis. bogged down in diehard minutia. <laughs> I love diehard. Next issue, next story General Amortis by Brett Blevins. I love this listing. I really, I like Brett Blevins' art. I think he's like criminally underrated. And this is, I think, a really nice piece. This is a much more serious looking piece than I usually expect from him. Now, didn't he do the goofy one in the last issue? The goofy flame fire, bur- fire bug thing? Yes, he did fire bug, yes. So to go from Firebug, which was a goofy, 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 almost you know Dick Sprang kind of entry, to this is very impressively. Yeah, he's a talented guy. He's really talented. His his figures, and you can see it here when the Doom Patrol is getting zapped by Immortus's little little cart of Doom there. Um, like how fluid those figures are. Like you really get a great sense of movement. And looking at this, it makes me think he would be he would be great on Plastic Man. Looking at Robot Man, I would agree. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I think he's a very, really, really talented guy. And uh, this uh, this whole piece is – and you get the nice history. You see the, the, the chief popping through the window, getting shot by Immortus, a nice big close-up of his old wrinkly face. <laughs> Doom Patrol. It's a really it's, – it's a really nice piece. And I love kind of how he exemplifies how sort of pathetic 
the figure is. I mean, he's this tiny, shriveled old man, and yet he's standing there in this crouch, and he's got his fist up like, Arr! so it's, it's it's great. It is a very well composed piece. So, and, and and I've seen some other Brett Blevins stuff that didn't I didn't warm to. So I'm really happy to see this. So that, that, that this pleases me very much. Yeah, now, really I didn't realize a couple different things here. This is some of his earliest DC work, by the way. Uh, I took a look at, and he really had not done much with DC up to this point. So this is very early in his career with DC. And I didn't realize General Immortus had been around since the very first appearance of the Doom Patrol. Yes. So that was pretty kind of cool. And I didn't realize he's the one responsible for crippling the chief. Yes, he's the one who's right there. He's shooting him right in the uh, right in the waist or whatever. I just always assumed it happened in a cave with an alien. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a X-Men reference for those of you who don't know. Anyway, um, finally, I, I didn't realize that he'd been alive for centuries. Well, hence the name. I, right, I know. Well, these are all things that I guess I didn't read much Doom Patrol. Or if I did, General Mortis wasn't typically featured. So I wonder I, if he hangs out with Vandal Savage. They probably do. You know, they, probably get, stuff. they probably get together once a year and play a game of chess. Or <laughs> World War One. that was crazy, huh? <laughs> you know, like when you get together with old friends and you sit about and talk about old times, yeah. they do it for hours <laughs> and days. So. Remember the Inquisition. Cheers to that. <laughs> that was a good time. So, Gentleman Ghost. Next up. I love uh, this one. This is an amazing drawing by Mr. Joe Kubert. This is absolutely beautiful. You get a great shot of Gentleman Ghost in the in the foreground, which is kind of ironic that it's the full color piece, but it's all just black and white. <laughs> anyway, you're you're sort of down, looking up at him as if he's either towering or floating over you, and it's really nice. It makes a great for great perspective shot. I really like that. His is you know he's, he wears the sort of nineteen or I'm sorry eighteen hundred sort of gentlemanly outfit. So he's got the frilly shirts and the bow ties and the tux tails and the cape and the cane and the top hat and the monocle. He looks great. And uh, it just it plays well in white. It plays well with Qbert style. Mm-hmm. And the serpent, you get a great close-up, just sort of a half face of him. Looks a little bit like uh, the penguin in that shot. But anyway, and then you, you see... <laughs> All of a sudden we just woke up Jack Dower. Right. You see Jim Craddock being hung in the background. And you see in the bottom uh, some clocks. And you see gentlemen ghost battling Hawkman, which is who he should be battling. So, absolutely amazing drawing. Can't say enough good things about it. They did an episode... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. They did an episode of the Super Friends where he fought them, and it is like he turns people into ghosts just by touching them with his cane, and it's genuinely creepy. Like, as, as creepy as a Super Friends episode can get. But it's it was genuinely kind of... When I was a kid, I remember being like, oh, God, that's upsetting. He's kind of like killing people. He was in the Super Friends. He was. He was. Yeah. It's. It's a. Wow. Yeah. I think this is one of DC's more like undervalued villains, like underused villains. I think he's got a great hook visually. I love this. The floating hat, no face there. Uh, if he's creepy looking, and uh, you know, I wish uh, he'd been used more. Maybe, maybe you get over overuse him. I guess, but um, it, I think if I was writing a DC comic, I'd be like, I gotta work this guy into my book. He's just a, a fun villain. Well, you, you say underused, but, you know, honestly, he is one of the – and this is part of my notes. Ironically, you mentioned it too. He is one of the more breakout characters, though, of theirs that's lesser-known breakout characters because he's appeared in a bunch of the various cartoon series. I didn't realize he was in Super Friends, but I know he's – I think it's been some of the Justice League stuff he's appeared in. I want to say it was Brave and the Bold. I mean he's made his way into a lot of already external media, if that's you will. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, there's action figures of him. There's toys. Uh, it, impressive amount of stuff. I actually saw a guy cosplay this one time, which was pretty Oh, fun. God, really? 
Yeah, it was oh, pretty cool. Oh, that's – how did he do the face? He, he – you know, the chest went all the way up to the top of his head and then the hat oh, and then the hat. wire that's floating up. Awesome. So that's So his chest great. looked a little elongated, but he looked – That's great. still points for effort. That's great. Exactly. Now, some of the interesting things about this here. Now, um, he claims to be a genuine ghost, which I've just – I accept that at face value. <laughs> to me, that's done. There's no discussion. Okay, he's No ghost. pun intended. Right. Oh, jeez. But as you read the entry, back then there was some question as to whether he was really a ghost or not. Because he, like, some of the instances where he would do spectral things, they found hidden tape recorders, like, involved. Like, modern-day technology used to help assist it. So it makes you go, like, maybe it's just a gimmick. How did he never fight the Scooby gang? Oh, so. (laughs) Well, he was supposedly, in the 1800s, he was a, a highwayman named Gentleman Jim or James Craddock. And uh, he was hung for his crimes, and he, you know, he swore he would come back and get them. Um, you know, he made a threat on the gallows, and uh, he, you know, he's been coming back ever since. So, interesting stuff. Yeah. I, I love this character. Yeah, good character. Good character. So, and he's even showed up in the New Fifty Two now too. Has he? Yes. Where was he in the New Fifty Two? Stop asking questions that I don't know, don't know answers to. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Okay. Why Vietnam, uh, Shane? What's that? Why Vietnam? <laughs> <laughs> asking you questions you don't have answers. I, I understand. Um, I, I would say, you know what? Most likely, probably Hawkman. You know, <laughs> Luke, I didn't let us know. The answer so. to why Vietnam is Hawkman? That makes no, no sense. All right, probably in Hawkman. <laughs> anyway, you're so complicated. You're like a handful. Anyway, Geoforce. Next up, uh, a really nice drawing by Jim Aparo. Now, this is where I got to ask the people at home who knows more than me. Did Jim really ink this? Because I thought by this point he wasn't inking his stuff. And this looks great, folks. It does look I mean, like it was inked by him, so it does look that good. Really? Okay. I mean, it's a great, great drawing. I really, really like this. And I just, I've made other disparaging comments, unfortunately, about Jim Aparo at this point. Not because he's not a great artist, but at this point in his life, I mean, he, his sight was going, he was struggling, and um, so this, is, this just really impressed me. Yeah, it's a nice piece. There, there's very little to say about Geoforce, as you can see here by the listing. So there's a lot of space, and... They, uh, G- he loved, uh, Jim Apparel loved the Geoforce, hey, look at my crotch pose, as we've seen. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> maybe Brian himself was proud of it or something like that. But it's, you know, it, it's, it, it's a good listing for a character that there isn't a whole lot to say about at the moment. Well, that's, that, I'm glad you mentioned it because that's one of my notes too, is that, you know, you're, as you said, there's not a lot of text here. But there's never a lot to say about him, which is the interesting thing. I mean, he was considered a big player in the 80s. Because, you know, he, he sort of headed up outsiders, but he never really broke through. You yeah, know? yeah, he stayed within the confines of, of that book. I mean, the closest he, I think he ever got to breaking through was he did join the Justice League of America not too long ago, just before uh, the New 52. But unfortunately, it was like the Justice League of America no one was reading anymore. Right. So it's, uh, it's an interesting character that he just never quite broke through. He always got really, really close. And they never made it to the... They did use him as a major plot point in Flashpoint. Really? Yeah. He was – Aquaman kidnapped him and used his powers to create the – Oh, yeah. Thing. I remember that. That's yeah. true. That's true. Okay. But, you know, I don't know that that still constitutes big time. No, I but. guess not. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things about his powers is when you're exposed to this, this thing that gives you the powers, you get – you know, the same thing that gave him his powers. If you're exposed to it, you get the powers temporarily. If you're exposed to it a second time, it causes death. It was all listed here in the story, so clearly that was a plot point at some point. <laughs> so don't get zapped a second time. So, and I didn't really follow Outsiders that closely. Um, 
uh, to <laughs> too much, you know, enjoyment of our listeners who can go back and forth about the po- pros and cons of outsiders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's not get Siskoid started on that. I do like how it lists the preview, and maybe this is a change. It says, um, you know, it was Brave and the Bold number 200, but it calls it, it says, the Batman and the Outsiders preview. Mm-hmm. And it's indicating it's inside Brave and the Bold 200. Maybe that's a change, because in previous issues, I'd be like, why did Amethyst first appear in Legion, or you know, or whatever? Well, it's 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 it even has something like that in an earlier listing for Gem World. It lists their first appearance as Legion Superiors two ninety eight, which I believe was the Amethyst preview. Oh, okay, I think, but I they didn't say preview in that. It one. doesn't say preview in that. So even you know, a couple of pages later, they're changing the. We'll, we'll just get David Bedard to write a letter for us about it. <laughs> That's Frank. That's our. He's our personal David. <laughs> yeah. Now it's also worth mentioning. Tara was his half sister, so she was, you know, obviously a major player in the New Teen Titans. At in this a point. in a text piece in an early issue of Batman and the Outsiders, Mike Barr talks about that he created Geoforce not knowing about Tara, and he gave Geoforce similar powers. And he told this to Mike to Marv Wolfman, and Wolfman's like, "Well, I'm introducing a character like next month that has the same powers," and they were like, "Oops." What are we going to do? And he said it was Wolfman who said, they're brother and sister. He's like, oh, okay. And then that problem was fixed. That's awesome. So cool. Next up, The Ghost by Carl Potts and Bob Wycheck. Um, Now, this was a Captain Adam foe who, you know, when they purchased the Charlton characters, came over with him. So he, he, at this point, I don't know that he had ever actually appeared in a DC comic. But was you know clearly about to make his way throughout the DC universe as a, as a supporting character or supporting villain, I should say. But really great art uh, takes up about mm, I don't know almost two thirds of the page. Uh, really nice art. I really like the serpent. The guy's face in the background looks really cool, <laughs> and uh, he's he's stealing money from a safe in the background. And for an all white costume, looks kind of cool. Uh, he's got the big flowing cape and the kind of the strange headpiece going around his head. It's a very unique looking f- headpiece. Yeah, I can't tell. Is that part of his head, or is that like a collar from his cape? The cover doesn't oh, you help know? me either. I can't. That's a good that point. Out. I just always kind of assumed it was like a, like you'd see on a snake villain, you know, the sort of thing. Right, That's right. what it looks like. But um, I never really thought much about him before. No, I never. <laughs> I didn't like, either. But because I'm doing the show, I'm like, you know, I'm going to read everything and do a little research. And his text piece is actually really fascinating. They really got into his motivation and his thoughts. Which is kind of cool because a lot of these text pieces, and I started, I mentioned I would talk about this. A lot of the text pieces in this issue are very factual. Almost Marvel Universe, Handbook of the Marvel Universe kind of factual, in that just states what the character has done, not why they did it or who they are, like at their core. So this one, you really got a sense for the character. I, I felt like if I needed to, I could write a story with a ghost after reading this. So that that so I thought that was pretty cool. I felt like I was more connected to it. Now, one interesting thing about his powers is, you know, he's usually when someone is a ghost character, they can walk through walls and stuff like that. His is actually a teleportation power. He would like teleport money out of safes and things like that. That's very handy. So yeah, it is very handy. <laughs> so kind of an interesting twist on the power. So and there's also a you know I just noticed in the serpent there's kind of an interesting diamond effect in the background going on. I didn't notice that. But it sets off the design well. Yeah, there's some crazy stuff in his history. They're talking about like a hidden land called Sonuria. Yeah. And then they, they mention here, uh, when an accident permanently grafted the teleportation device into his hand, the ghost had it covered by a new layer, new layer of skin by the scientists of the hidden city of Sonuria. Oh, what? Like, what the yep. hell is going on? 
But you learn stuff about the guy. You learn, you learn a lot about this guy. Ooh, I just noticed his last three fingers are like taped together <laughs> in a glove. That's wild. He's a Simpsons character. This character's like fascinated me. All right. Next up, the Ghost Patrol. Now, I didn't know much about this group either. I, I sort of, I don't know why, I'd always kind of glazed over their entry. Well, they're Golden Age guys, and they've never really reappeared, so. Uh, exactly. So, they, they, in fact, they were around from 1942 to 1949. They were pretty active, actually. They, they made a lot of appearances from 42 to 49, and then just vanished yeah. until now, until 1985. And in fact, if you want to read more, our buddy Siskoi just did an entry about them over on his blog, the Siskoi's blog of geekery. Now, you've got an art piece here by Luke McConnell, or sorry, Luke McDonnell and Carl Kiesel, and it's a nice piece. It's in the front, really you've got, nice. Yeah, you've got the three Ghost Patrol guys, and in the background, you've got the Serpent, and I'll, actually, I'll let you chat about it in a minute because I'm talking so much here. But just to, to, so you know what this team is about, it's a team of three guys that died during World War II, and they were members of the French Foreign Legion. And when they died, they all came back as ghosts and continued to battle the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much people hate Nazis. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, they they had all these adventures causing troubles for the Nazis, but they were ghosts, you know, going sneaking around and doing stuff. Uh, now there is interesting. There's a little bit of retconning going on in here, or at least acknowledging later history where they do mention the Spear of Destiny and the All Star Squadron, mm-hmm. even though these guys had not made an appearance in it yet. But they're all World War II connected. So, um, so tell me, what do you what do you think? It's from an artist's sake. What do you think about the fronts? You know, drawing versus the, the serpent in this thing. Well, I think the whole thing is really nice. I mean, their color scheme is a little different, the kind of orangey color. That's, that's fairly unique. Uh, it, to me, it, it's very evocative of the time. It, it's, it looks kind of a little lighthearted, but you could also get, you know, they're in the 40s outfits, clearly. I love the effect of them walking in the, the, the kind of like uh, phasing through the ground there, coming up out of the grave. And then you've got this creepy tree in reverse and in white with a black black uh, background. It's a really, really nice piece by, by McDonald and Kiesel. And it made me want to, when I was a kid, I can honestly say, it made me want to read more about these guys. Now, there was no way for me to do that because, you know, the, the comics they appeared in were not available anywhere. But uh, it made me want to. And I would, again, if I was a DC writer, I would want to bring these guys back. I think Ghost Hunters, you know, that's like a timely thing. That's a big, hot thing. I think that they would be great to, to bring back. If it was uh, pre-New 52, they could be joined by Ralph and Sue. Yeah, oh, God, that's so sad. And, well, uh, they, the, were, they were on their way to becoming the ghost detectives. Yeah, I, 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 no, that, no, there's no story like that. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and I like, uh, <laughs> I like that the one guy looks like Ace Kilroy. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> and I like that they made one of the guys heavyset. You know, yeah, just kind of shows yeah, it's different. Yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great piece. It's, this is, to me, one of the side benefits to Husu was, was digging up, no pun intended, these old characters, <laughs> I really didn't mean that. These old characters that probably, if you really want to be strict, didn't deserve a listing and that, that they hadn't appeared in three decades. But clearly they were some, you know, they were somebody's favorites or at least somebody, you know, went to bat for them and said, oh, let's put the Ghost Patrol in there. And, and, and that's neat. I think that's, it, it's a reminder of DC's rich history. I do like the fact that apparently when you die, you get a uniform. That's awesome. I, that, that's very comforting to know. <laughs> They all wear the same uniform, so just know that apparently orange is in our future if we die during World War II. I'm okay with so. that. <laughs> all right. Next up, we've got our first page that is a split entry. On the top half, we've got GI Robot, and on the bottom, we've got Gizmo. So, you know, two, two that make sense being together, uh, <laughs> other than alphabetically. So, and GI Robot is by Mike Chen and Murphy Anderson, and dang, this is an awesome-looking drawing. 
I wish I could see this at full page. This is so nice. Mike Chen is a former instructor of mine at the Kubert School. Is he really? Mm Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't mind digging up some of his comics because this is really great looking. Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a talented guy. He was, he was, he was, he was fun to try and get to laugh because he was very serious. Mm-hmm. But if you could get him to laugh, you really feel like you accomplished something. <laughs> I like that anecdote. That's good. Well, you've got in the foreground GI robot who is literally a robot during World War II walking towards you. You know, so it's just sort of a standard pose of him just walking towards you, but you get a real good look at the intricacies of his robotic body and his torn and ripped GI uniform. And, of course, his helmet with number two, because this is actually the second GI robot. In the background, you get uh, in the serpent, you've got GI robot uh, blasting something with his hand. You've got the American flag. You've got some uh, him helping a, a fallen soldier. And then you get uh, who I assume must be his buddy, uh, Sergeant Coker, there with him in the in the serpent, a good close up of his face. Really nice drawing. This is a good example of uh, a, a child being misled by who's who. I thought GI Robot was a major player in war comics. <laughs> I figured he'd been around since the fifties. You know, I, I knew I knew he probably went around in the forties because that'd be ridiculous. But I figured he'd probably been around since the fifties. Because uh, the comic was called Weird War Tales. I'm like, okay, that's got to be like a 50s comic. And I figured he'd been around all this time. Turns out he was invented in 1981 mm-hmm. and hadn't been around all that – hadn't even made all that many appearances. So now his his, or, his his history is very factual. There's no – you don't give you, again, no real sense of who the character is, um, which is a crime. I felt, I've always felt like this character deserves more. I also think, you know, this this is a really – impressive inking job by Murphy Anderson. Because, I mean, the, usually when we see Murphy Anderson inking stuff, it's sort of like, you know, um, Kurt Swan or somebody a little more traditional. This has got, you know, some high-tech stuff. It's got some de- really detailed fine lines. Now, I don't know how big it was when they drew it. I mean, they may have drawn it on something as big as a poster board and shrank it down. I don't know. But there's a lot of little tiny details in this that really come out sharp-looking. There's some nice cross-hatching. I, I'm in love with this entry. I want more GI Robot. <laughs> Mike, uh, Mike... When his in his comic work did a lot of stuff with robots. He liked robots, and I think I, I can't. Yeah, and so I, I have to think that that's. I should have asked him. I, it didn't even occur to me to ask him before we did this episode uh, about it. But I will ask him after. Um, but whether that's why he got this gig, uh, because it's it's a robot character. Because he did a lot of. He was really good at like sort of technical drawings and things like that. So I have to think that that's something to do with it. I can't. Uh-oh. We can't. We can't let this go without mentioning that not only did GI Robot fight in World War II. He also had a robot dog and a robot cat. <laughs> Actually, I have to mention something I just stumbled across online. Um, it lists the penciler. Oh, never mind. Just ignore what I was going to say there. <laughs> It'll make a lot more sense in a minute. Anyway. I'm going to put that clip in the front of every episode from now on. Uh, you should. You should absolutely start everything with it. Now, this little entry inspired so many people I know. When, when we would role-play superhero games... G.I. Robot would show up. <laughs> not, not all the time, but any time we did something where it was like a cross-time episode, a, a role-playing episode or adventure, we'd always run into G.I. Robot because this little entry alone inspired me and my geek friends to be fascinated by the character. Wow. Well done. I tell you. Well done, guys. All right. Next up is Gizmo by George Perez. That's what threw me. I was reading something online, and it mentioned George Perez with the G.I. Robot. I'm like, what? No. Then I realized they're talking about the Gizmo half the page. Anyway, so Gizmo from the New Teen Titans. Um, He is, you know, it's sort of funny to me that the 
diminutive guy got half the he gets page. He half a page, yeah. And it's on the bottom, too. <laughs> the other members of the Fearsome Five got full pages. Yeah, but, you know, he's tiny, so it makes sense. I think he has a really, really cute logo. I like it. It's it's, it's representative of all, all his pockets and pouches. I <laughs> think that's funny. So, um, you know, it's the bio is probably too short, though, to the point where you really don't learn anything about the character. Yeah. You know, other than he was a science prodigy, and I don't think he's very nice, if I remember right. <laughs> but it's a nice shot of him in the front with all his pouches. I mean, you know, this is almost like the prototype 90s character with all these pouches. <laughs> Gog- goggles and pouches. I didn't even think about that. But, so it all started here. Hmm. Anyway, and in the background, you got him working on his workshop, and, and then he's blasting Cyborg with something. Because they, I mean, they say he can turn just about anything into something dangerous. You know, like he can turn a vacuum cleaner. Actually, I don't think this is in here. I read. No, it does. Okay. He can turn an ordinary vacuum cleaner into a deadly, unstoppable tank. <laughs> he's MacGyver. I tell you, he is. I have to think this was a labor of love for Perez because he inked it himself. Such a weird little character. But, I mean, I Perez was probably so busy at this point. I mean, you know, he was so so in demand. I can imagine uh, that he didn't get a chance to ink himself very much because he was too busy. So for, for him to ink this himself, I have to think he really wanted to do this. Could very well be. Could very well be. Uh, next up is your kapow moment. Uh, you open to a big two-page two spread of the Global Guardians. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all these characters just running at you and, you know, very dynamic, very action-oriented, very superhero-y. And then, you know, as an experienced comic reader, you go, wow, look at all these characters and who the hell are these people? <laughs> uh, this is a, a superhero team which really, I mean, this entry makes them look like they are big time, you know? This is also what led me to believe Jack O'Lantern was a major player in the DC Universe. <laughs> It's by Edward Barreto, first of all, so it's gorgeous, you know, absolutely great art. And, you know, I'm going to run through the character names just so everyone at home gets an idea exactly, you know, these superstars that uh, that appear here. Dr. Mist, Bushmaster, Godiva, Green Fury, Ice Maiden, Impala, Jack-O-Lantern, Little Mermaid, Olympian, Owl Woman, Rising Sun, Seraph, Tasmanian Devil, Thunderlord, Tuatara, and Wild Huntsman. Now... The breakout characters of this, or breakout character, I should say, really is Green Fury, who went on to be Fire in Justice League International. And don't be confused, Ice Maiden did not go on to be Ice. For some reason, there was a change there. She uh, Ice became was somebody else, and then when Ice died, Ice Maiden joined her as the new Ice. But uh, So, pretty much everyone else, you know, Dr. Miss made a few appearances, Godiva did make it into Justice League International in the New 52... Jack-O-Lantern made it into the much-praised Primal Force. Uh, Olympian, I I like Primal Force. I was was being sarcastic about much-praised. But Olympian showed up once or twice, I want to say maybe in a Wonder Woman comic. Owlman showed up once or twice. But, I mean, Tasmanian Devil joined Justice League International when nobody was reading it. Uh, um, So, I mean, these characters really didn't break out like they should have. Now, maybe it has something to do with where they started. Rob, where'd they start? The Super Friends. Yes. So... Super Friends was sort of a comic that told, you know, just like any cartoon adaptation, almost existed in its own universe, but didn't quite. Still, it, it made more references to the modern Earth-1 DC universe than most comics, but most people still just didn't read it. You know, they didn't accept it as part of the DC universe. Yeah. There's, there really, when I was a kid, I, I just pretty much glossed over this listing because I was like, these people are weird looking. Let's just keep going. But there's, no, but there's no reason for that. It, it really, that, that is just like a little piece of like America centrism because 
these characters are based off of local customs and myths and legends, and so they reflect that. And, you know, the, I'm sure that some of the stuff that comes out of America, specific that is so specifically American, might look silly to people from other countries. So there's nothing, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with, like, Dr. Mist. It's, you know, I'm sure that if you were from that part of the world, you would say, oh, yeah, he looks like a character that comes from, from you know, where I'm from. So these characters are, are perfectly acceptable. It just, you know, when I was a kid, I just wasn't interested in learning about characters from Israel or characters from, you know, Norway. I just was like, yeah, whatever. But but you look at this piece and you're like, there's no reason why this couldn't work. And in fact, some of them look really cool. Tasmanian Devil looks really cool. Like, yeah. If you drew him well, he'd look pretty badass, you know. And Owl Woman, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, so there's a lot of cool characters here. And it's, it's just a matter of, um, you know, like figuring out how to make them look effective to an American audience. Um, I will say this, this is the most, the most specific first appearance listing ever. It says, <laughs> these heroes first appeared in issues 7, 8, 9, 12, 13, 25, and 45 of Super Friends. They were first called the Global Guardians in DC Comics Presents number 46. And then in parentheses, the man we call Dr. Mist appeared briefly in chapter 18 of Wisdom's Daughter by H. Ryder Haggard. What? Like, that blew my mind. I had to look that up. Like, what did that even mean? There, there's a book, and there's this character in this book that had been around for a long time, like alive for a long time, and what they were saying is this character in the comic was that same historical character. That is odd. It's very strange. <laughs> very strange. One of the things that also caught my attention is it says Green Fury, who goes on, by the way, to become Green Flame, who goes on to become Fire says she could breathe cold flames. Because she could breathe fire back then. She couldn't project fire, otherwise she'd breathe it out. Anyway, not only could she breathe hot fire, she could breathe cold fire, and she could cast illusions. Like, what? Yeah, they they got, yeah, they did all that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, again, I think, I, you said that some of the costumes would need to be redone. Some of no, costumes, no, 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 think, no, 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 I didn't say that. I said well, that, you meant figure out how to draw them for American audiences. I, I just think... I, well, or maybe I didn't even mean to say that. No, they, they, I think these characters are perfectly fine. It's just a matter of finding a way to, to make them palatable for an American-centric audience, which is, at the time, which is what comic books were. I mean, I think we're much more... Um, the Who's the, the, the Who books, I think, were meant for American audiences because that's where the majority of DC sales were. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with them, and there's no no no, no need to redo them all because I'm sure that for whatever countries they hail from, they look, they, they look just as representative of their countries as Captain America does of ours. Well, I, I would say you probably should redo Impala and Little Mermaid's costumes. But other than that, <laughs> okay. I think all the costumes look great. I really do. And it, I think it's just a matter of they didn't appear in the right books. I think if they had appeared in the right books, these costumes would have been just as acceptable as anything else. Because mm -hmm. they're great-looking characters, and um, they really excited me. You know, I was really, really jazzed about this growing up. So, I, really, cool, really cool logo, too. Yes. I'm going to say something I rarely say. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Owl Woman, she's hot. Yep, yep. Uh, next up, we have Gleek from the Super Friends as well, drawn by Ramona, <laughs> Ramona Frayden. And, uh, that would have been I, awesome. A, what's that? That would have been awesome. See, you know, you're supposed to go with me. And, uh, and actually, I was supposed to mention it before Global Guardians to get it alphabetically right. Yeah. But I was going to do this whole bit about a Gleek entry, <laughs> and then just keep going, and come back later and say, like, I just, you know, 20 minutes ago, I blew Earth Chris's mind, you know, something like that or something. Oh, well. you got to tell me these things beforehand, dude. I forgot. We were we were in a rush to start recording this morning. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, realist. Truthfully, next up is Glorious Godfrey, uh, drawn by Jack Kirby and Bob Smith. Uh, it's a, a very nice foreground image of Glorious Godfrey. Uh, it looks 
very, very Kirby-esque of the era. I, I, I don't think it's uh, – I think some people have talked about some Kirby drawings were thick-stenized. Uh, I feel like this is a little more pure Kirby. I think it looks great. He's got his hand raised up. So, like, you know, he's, he's, he's an orator. So he's, he's telling a story or, or he's energizing the crowd in his picture here. So I like that. And, uh, you know, it's a, his first appearance, you know, it's a shame it was in Forever People. So no one ever actually read it. But, and so that's why it came as such a surprise in Legends. No one knew who he was. Oh, come on. That was funny. I got nothing for saying that girl, that woman was hot. I got nothing from it. I thought you would be so happy. Oh, I'm sorry. But I went down to your level, and now, okay, now I'm supposed to respond to your every little utterance. I see. see I'm used to I'm used to operating that level, so I don't even notice when other people come down and join me. Because <laughs> I would have gone on and said, "Yes, Green Flame was hot, and so was Godiva as well." So, <laughs> I I apologize. I'll work harder. <laughs> I'll say the same thing when we get to Granny Goodness. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, I don't have a lot to say on this one. I just I think it's a nice drawing. Um, Glorious Godfrey really didn't get on my radar till Legends. But uh, you know, I think it's I think it's nice. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't want to say anything disparaging about the king of comics, so I'm just going to move on. There we go. Next up is Golden Gladiator, a very very nice classical kind of comic drawing. It's drawn by Russ Heath, who actually drew the original character back in the, I think it's the 50s. He drew the original drawings of the character, and so it's it's a very classic comic book sort of standard pose there. Classic images in the background, and uh, it's very sharp-looking drawing. Oh, Russ Heath is a friggin' genius. He did the Sea Devil stuff. He did a lot of great horror comics for, like, Warren. and th- He was awesomely talented, awesomely talented artist, and it was great that DC got him to do... I don't know how many listings he did for DC. This might be the only one, um, which would be too bad, because he, he was awesome, 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 awesome artist. So this piece is, to me, a little on the dull side, just the pose is just... but. But I'm just so happy to have Russ Heath in the who's who that it doesn't matter. I was trying to avoid saying dull by saying classic, but yeah, yeah. agreed. Um, you know, it, for, this reminded me a lot of, um, oh gosh, names were escaping me. doesn't matter then. Moving on. Okay. Uh, the character was reused not too long ago in Walt Simonson's Judas Coin. So it was kind of cool to see the the callback here for me, just knowing the character from Judas Coin. And uh, so yeah, he went from the character went from 1955 to 1985, didn't get mentioned once, and then you get this, well, bam! So very cool. I love nice his o- occupation: former shepherd, former slave, now warrior. Ah, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to the Russell Crowe big budget Golden Gladiator movie that's coming out. Oh, you know it, buddy. You know it's coming. <laughs> so I hear it's in pre-production, isn't everything? So, next up is Golden Glider uh, by Irv Novak, uh, Novik, I'm sorry, Irv Novik and Dick Giordano. It's an interesting character here. Um, I guess we, let's talk about, i got a lot to talk about this character. Let's talk about the art first, I guess. So, uh, now, I think you've told me, because I didn't know this, Irv Novik was a Flash artist. Is that right? He did, he did many different books. He did Batman for a while, but he also did Flash. Okay. Um, you know, she's, I always saw her as a sexy character whenever I saw her in comics, and... I guess she's sexy here. I don't know. It doesn't really catch my attention that way. Her legs look a little – I guess they're supposed to be coming at you, so they're a little longer than you would expect, like the perspective. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I do like – I like her face in the background. They've got a really nice shot of her face. She's like – it's kind of beautiful and angry at the same time, so it's a really nice shot. And then you see her in the background talking to her brother, uh, Leonard Snart, uh, who is Captain Cold. <laughs> Great name. 
It is. She's zapping the flash, and she's also sliding on her, on her magic ice. So you know, it's 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 a nice drawing. It's it's not my personal favorite, but it's you know, I think it's it's very nice. Now the character is very interesting. Uh, it shows you how ancestral the rogues are for flashes. I mean, she's Captain Cold's sister. Then she was the top's girlfriend. So apparently they all just kind of like you know hung together. Kinda, well, you know, usually if you have a sister, your sister ends up dating some of your friends eventually. But um, then when the top there was the top accidentally died, so she wanted revenge on the Flash, and that was her kind of her motif. She wanted revenge on the Flash for the top's death, even though he came back at some issues, sort of like possessing Flash's dad, all this weird <laughs> stuff. Now, here's the thing: like I started reading this, and I'm like, didn't she die at some point? Yes, in pre-crisis, she did die. And uh, I don't remember the circumstances around it, but yeah, she. So it was, at this point, she was alive. So that was what was confusing the heck out of me. But she also used to bring around boy toys. I don't know if you remember this. She would bring around boy toys, and every and it was always a different guy, but they were always called Chillblain. <laughs> I have no knowledge of this at all. It was hilarious. She had her she had her boy toy, and it was always called Chillblain. He used like her brother's you know ice gun. So and she's appeared in the New Fifty Two recently in a very cool interpretation. I really like that. Now, now, the part that blows my mind is her arsenal. She has skates that can create ice. She has, you know, she can emit anti-gravity. She's got jewels that can do hypnotism, force field, teleportations, <laughs> illusions, acids, etc. Why didn't she just, you know, patent all this stuff <laughs> and, you know, become a gazillionaire and then bury the Flash that way somehow? Because, like, she she could do anything, you know. So uh, insane arsenal and um, makes for an interesting character, I suppose. Some people just need to be criminal. I tell you, she wanted all the pretty things. Mm-hmm. So next up is Goldface. Uh, love his logo. It looks very much like Booster Gold's logo. One of the most unfortunately named characters, I would say. Because it is kind of silly, isn't it? There's something it? about Goldface that just sounds like he's from an Austin Powers movie or something. Well, I was going to say Goldfinger was taken, right? Yeah. So, uh, Drawn by Gil Kane. Now, he is one of the classic Green Lantern foes. It makes perfect sense to have Gil Kane draw it. Um, nice drawing uh, for a yellow character. So, I mean, he's got the he's got sort of like the Kang sleeves. And uh, he's got – he actually looks quite a bit like Kang now I notice it. He does. I mean, yeah, he's he looks so unhappy there too. Well, he, he's supposed to. You know, he's a bad guy. His life's hard. He's just so. like, Rrr. yeah, but he's happy at the bottom there where he's punching Green Lantern. Well, who wouldn't be happy <laughs> bitch-slapping bitch Hal Jordan across <laughs> the face? So. But so there's, a, you know, some nice shots here, here close-up of his face with white temples and him zapping Green Lantern and him punching Green Lantern. Um, the character never really interested me growing up. And unfortunately, um, read this entry, and that didn't really do much for me either. I mean... As far as I could tell, the only thing is he's got going for him is he's strong and he's a little tough, and he's yellow. And that's it. Like I never really got the sense for why. I never really got a sense for his motivation. So, um, other than he's a criminal, you know. So it's, I felt like this entry would have done with a little more oomph in the in the history to get you a sense for who the character is or why he's doing this stuff. I couldn't help but notice this as base of operations originally a small Hawaiian island, now mobile. I'm just saying that if I was born on a small Hawaiian island, I don't think I would bother getting into a life of crime. I think I'd be like, you know what? Life's pretty good. I'm on a Hawaiian island. I'm just going to stay here. Exactly. Just chill out. Yeah, just chill you know, out, you, dude. Just... If you've got access to that much gold, you know, just buy the friggin' island. Just go you know, and surf. Like... Just relax. Because I'm sure people who live in Hawaii have no problems because, you know, it's so perfect out there. So 
it, it is pretty nice. So, I did spend a summer there. So. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I know you're uh, not kidding. That's what I'm telling you to shut up. Next are Gordanians. Look at that. Thank you, Glossary. Uh, <laughs> that really helped me out just then. I had to flip forward to look at that. Um, now, it's Bruce Patterson drew this, which is sort of an odd choice because he wasn't really that connected with DC Comics at this point. But it's really nice. Um, the, the, these lizard guys in the foreground in their yellow uniforms, you know, yellow stormtroopers, essentially yellow lizard stormtroopers look really great. There's some great detail on the lizard face with their eyebrows and their mouths and their uniforms. I love it. Um, now Rob, I don't know Jack or crap about the, I just changed it from words, but anyway, I don't know anything about Omega men, but in the background, I see two different races that, Almost look like they're these things might be an amalgamum of those two races. What's what's the scoop here? The, they were they were as it mentions here. Well, this word right here. It says some hundreds of cycles ago, the Citadel, see Citadel, came in contact with the Gordanians and quietly annexed them in exchange for a steady supply of weapons and technology. So they're basically kind of like the goons of the Citadel, which are the main bad guys of the Omega Men. Is that who's in the background, Citadel members? Yes, or yeah, those big globby looking guys there. Okay, gotcha. All right. And then if you've got Starfire blasting a couple of them to give you your connection to either New Teen Titans or uh, Omega Men, because she was, she was kind of connected to them in the beginning, wasn't mm-hmm. she? Like, yes. Yeah. Some nice, um, I don't know if you call it cross-hatching. What is that at the bottom, that arc in the background? Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's cross, I mean, it's technically cross-hatching. It's very loose cross-hatching, as you can see as it, as it fades down. But yeah, that's really what it is. It's cool. I dig that. Now, the first appearance was in Green Lantern. What's up with that? That's where the Omega Men first appeared. Okay. Miss Greenland well, 142. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. All right. It's an interesting story. And uh, the, as you read it, I mean, you get a – this is a good one where you get kind of a sense of what's going on. And they, they're really, really bad guys. Anyway, so I dug that. All right. Next up, Gorilla City, uh, drawn by Alan Kupperberg and Rick Magyar. Now, um, <laughs> I'll take Rob's approach. This is a, a drawing very representative of the time. It's a it's a dull listing for a fairly hallowed piece of DC real estate. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Now, the most notable thing in this entire entry um, is uh, it says the only human allowed to retain his memory of Gorilla City was the second Flash, comma, who has since died. Oops. No, no. Oh, well, you're right. That was already out by now. I'm sorry. I thought they it were... Was, uh, it was a month or two before. Okay. Um, but if you hadn't been reading your, your Crisis, I mean, that was just a big, what? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, that's I believe that's the first entry notice of The Flash, because last month was, the, you know, was The Flash issue, and it said, you know, The Flash is going to play a major role in Crisis. <laughs> you know, the next who's who you pick up, The Flash is dead. Oh, that's <laughs> so, a major role. It's true. He's a major role as a as a corpse. So, um, also kind of found it fascinating. They go to these great efforts to debunk this alien origins myth of the uh, the Gorilla City. I mean, they go on. <laughs> where is it? Um, I gotta find this. Where is it? In some parallel uh, universe, there's a Leonard Nimoy in search of Gorilla City. The origin of Gorilla City is unknown. However, one published account alleges that the city originally existed on the planet Kalor, and the gorillas mentally tapped the energies of Green Lantern's ring to transport them to Earth. This account is clearly erroneous, since the second Flash first visited Gorilla City on Earth before Hal Jordan ever became a Green Lantern. 
So basically that's what it's saying is some dude wrote a Green Lantern story and screwed up the origin of <laughs> gorillas, and now we have to say that's not true. That's how I read that. Probably Bob Haney. He didn't care. <laughs> oh, it probably was a Bob Haney story. All right. So, um, all right. That's all I got to say well, about it is that. worth mentioning just before we get off this. DC tried to do a Gorilla City comic. What? Yes, in the seventies, they they produced one issue. It was written. It was uh, drawn by Carl Potts, and it was almost kind of like a comedy where um, Gorilla Grodd is like it's basically like the fugitive with Gorilla Grodd as the fugitive in Gorilla City. And there was a point where like uh, because all gorillas look alike, he, like to 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 disguise himself, he wears glasses <laughs> so people don't recognize him as Gorilla Grodd. <laughs> oh my god! It's a good yeah. They ran an article about it in Back Issue magazine, and DC put it together, and then they killed it before it ever got published. They, Has it ever gotten out? Uh, some pages of art have. Um, oh, my but, gosh. But, yeah, yeah, it's really – the pages I've seen, they're re- – and it was, I think, drawn by Carl Potts and Terry Austin. So it's a really, Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's really beautiful looking, and, and then they just killed it. They just were – I think DC just said, nah, we're never going to be able to sell this. So they – I don't even know if the whole first issue was ever even completed, but, yeah, so it never went anywhere. But it's too bad. That would have been a fun, weird little book. How bizarre! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my favorite bit is that is Grod, is Grod putting on glasses. To oh yeah, yeah. Of I mean, that's a perfect, that's a perfect yeah. disguise. Who would ever think? <laughs> All right. Uh, next up is in the in the spirit of gorillas, Gorilla Grod, uh, drawn by one of the weirdest art teamings uh, around, yeah. Carmen Infantino and Bill Sienkiewicz. This is a great listing. I mean, even though Grod is just standing there, it really gets across the, the notion of his massiveness. You know, mm-hmm. he just he looks like he's just like boom and he just he ain't moving. So I think it's it's a really nice piece. And they surprisingly make a good combo. They it does well. And I, I wonder how heavily this is Sinkevich versus Infantino, especially when you look at Grodd's face. That doesn't really look like an Infantino face, but it looks a lot like a gorilla. So I wonder if he sort of took a heavy hand at mm. making it look like a gorilla. But yeah, I mean the the drawing, as Rob described it also f- almost fills the entire picture window, which is what helps give that mammoth size. Is it just there's very little space for a little tiny gorilla face and a human face, which we'll have to get into in a second, and then Grodd zapping Flash. So really strange stuff. Now, the the reason why I hesitated a moment ago is Grodd has got some weird-ass origin stuff about going back and forth, about possessing human bodies, evolving, devolving bodies, Switching bodies, all kinds of crazy stuff with humans. Um, I didn't realize I, – I read a couple of these stories. I didn't realize how much time Grodd spent in human form. Uh, it's quite strange. Yeah. <laughs> Flash was getting sort of out there, I think, at that point probably. But anyway, he also died a few times, it appears, too. So, But it, the, you know, if we just go straight by art, it's a really nice entry. It is. It's a very nice piece. I think we'll move on. Speaking of bringing the sexy – uh, oh, rainy goodness. Oh, <laughs> My favorite thing about this character is that they hired Ed Asner to do the voice of the character in the cartoon. <laughs> I just love the fact they hired a guy to do it. I think that's a great, that's a great little gag. <laughs> uh, Jack Kirby and Greg Theakston. Uh, now, Granny Goodness, of course, is part of the New Gods. Uh, I should have said that with Glorious Godfrey as well, if, if, if you didn't know already. Part of the New Gods world. Uh, she was dark side sort of... Um, and she ran the orphanages on Apocalypse. <laughs> so I love this drawing. I love that you've got this old lady who's overweight and mean in the DC universe. <laughs> Just, I think that's awesome. That's exactly what you need. Uh, you know, we didn't know we needed it until we got it. 
<laughs> and I think this drawing is absolutely representative of that. So, uh, you know, the origin's fine, tells you a lot about her time, uh, you know, and what basically recapping what's happened in the New Gods comics with her character. But I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. I like the logo, too. Yeah, it's kind of cool, yeah. I like how she's sort of disciplining one of her students in the background. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Female Furies back there, too. <laughs> and the close-up of her face is simply just her face going... <laughs> Fun stuff. Now, this next one really captured my imagination. This is Gravedigger by Dick Ayers and Ricardo... Villagran. Villagran, thank you. Now, Dick Ayers did draw the original appearances of Gravedigger, which is why they got him back. Now, I didn't you – know, this is another one of these as a kid. I didn't really have a perspective on this character. I didn't know if he'd been around forever or if he was a, a fairly new character. Turns out, sure enough, yeah, he wasn't all that old. Yeah, Men he of was, War was a 70s book. Exactly, 1977. Very good. Um, now, Dick Ayers. Now, wasn't he an old, like, an Avengers artist? Uh, Fantastic Four. He did a lot, he did a ton of stuff. He did Fantastic okay. Four, and he did a lot of fifties comics. He had a long, long career. This is a really dynamic, very modern piece for someone that you know was a fifties and sixties artist. I mean, this is really impressive. So I don't know enough about Dick Ayers to know whether I, I should be praising him all the time or not. I don't know, but this really grabs my imagination. Yeah, it's a very nice piece. It really is. It's uh, I, I I wasn't familiar with these characters at all, but uh, this is this is a very nice drawing. He does he looks like somebody you do not want to screw with. He's he's got a grenade yeah. in one hand and a gun in the other. <laughs> Plus and he's got a, a knife attached to his leg, another gun on his back, and then that giant scar across his face is you know suggests. Yeah, he's got this giant scar on his face shaped like a cross. Yeah. You know, um, his job was he he dug graves uh, was what he did, and he wanted to prove himself. So much that he went to Washington. This is during World War II, by the way. He went to Washington and sort of like uh, broke into the Pentagon, <laughs> Pentagon. to the, go to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and demand that they use him more. So they're really impressed with him. He became their one-man commando named Galt Gravedigger. And, That's uh, great. Sort of like turn him loose in Europe and go kill a bunch of people. Just kill some Nazis. Here you go, buddy. Yep. So he was always uh, – you know, one of the nice things about it, his character was, you know, it was one of his riffs was he was always battling racial prejudice because uh, he's an African-American. And it, it was a nice, you know, a nice nod to that era. You know, in the 70s, DC was trying to do more and more of that. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's a cool character. really captures my imagination. Mm-hmm. So This next one is probably one of my favorite entries in the whole book. Um, it, it, not as a kid, but now as an adult it is. It is the classic Green Arrow. You know the the Golden Age Green Arrow drawn by George Tuska and Bill Ray. Now does this now, does this get, help you ameliorate your feelings about George Tuska? I was just going to say I I have said many disparaging things about George Tuska over the years because he crapped all over a couple issues of Firestorm, which really upset me. But, but it turns out you know that's not where he should have been. He should it's not his fault that he drew the comic. They they should have got someone else. You know here though he does an awesome emulation of a Golden Age hero. You know. Um, Bill Ray did a great job inking it. This looks exactly like what a Golden Age character should. You know, it's Green Arrow. He looks muscle-bound. He's in the foreground. He looks heroic. He looks very Robin Hood-esque. In the background, you've got his aeroplane. You've got a close-up of Ollie's face. you got him shooting the boxing boxing glove arrow. You see, um, a, you know, I don't know whether that's him or Speedy training. I'm not sure. But shooting an arrow at a tree. You see him driving the arrow car. Well, that's I mean, him. That's him. Okay. It's a great, great, great shot. I love it. Yeah, it's a really nice piece. One of my favorite George Tuska pieces. I mean, I wasn't like the number one fan of his, but I've always said that 
he was a great artist when he was given the right material. He was not a sci-fi guy or, you know, like Firestorm Justice League, not the right books for him. But this is good. This is a really good piece. It's also colored very well. I love the uh, use of the magenta in the background. Mm-hmm. I think it contrasts well with the green. It's it's a really, really nice piece. That logo is full of win. It's is that fun, yeah. Is that their classic logo? I believe so. I think so. The okay. one from the, the 40s. He, of course, first appeared in the same comic that Aquaman first appeared in. Yep. And went on to be much more popular. So, This podcast is officially over. <laughs> Wasn't that your line normally? <laughs> just, uh, just go on. <laughs> now, I don't think George Tusca actually had any connection to the character before this. But dang, I just – I can't get over how much I love You know what this looks like? This looks like uh, – it, it, if you just tweak the tiny bit, this could be right out of the Brave and the Bull comic book, uh, car- cartoon animated series kind of mm. thing. It's just that cool. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the origin of Green Arrow, the classic Green Arrow, is vastly different than the one we've come to know. Um, you know, I mean, he's still rich, but, I mean, he, 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 he didn't get lost on an island. He didn't do all that. He, uh, he ended up just encountering some criminals – and, uh, and, and Roy Harper, and uh, they ran off the criminals, if I remember right, and um, decided to use their experience to try and wrong some rights, and uh, right some wrongs, and uh, became Green Arrow. I mean, <laughs> wrong some, some rights. <laughs> well, that would be the evil Green Arrow. That's how different it was. But <laughs> Look at was, all those nice was, people doing nice things. <laughs> I'm going to put a stop to that. And it was tied in with uh, Native American history to some extent. So, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of origin. You know, I'm going to make sure this one goes up on the Tumblr so you guys can go out there and read about yeah, it. It's, it's, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. So, next up is Green Arrow. The At this point, would have been the modern-day Green Arrow, the Earth-1 Green Arrow. And uh, drawn by, of course, Mike Rell, uh, best known for – probably the best-known artist. Him and Neil Adams are probably the two best-known artists on Green Arrow, I would say, from, you know, Earth-1 Green Arrow, unless I'm mistaken. No, I think that's that's accurate. Yep. Now, I wasn't sure. When I read this, I was like, ooh, is this Mike Grell's first shot at the character? No. Mike Grell first touched this character back in 1974. So, uh, in Action Comics, I didn't realize it had been that long. So, a couple different things, <clears throat> a couple things to note here. Uh, his first appearance, I love uh, when, they, when they have a, a, a character like Green Arrow, who there was no real clear line when... It stopped being the Earth 2 Green Arrow and right, became the Earth right. 1 Green Arrow. I find that stuff fascinating because, like, you know, Green Lantern, you get Alan Scott and Hal Jordan. No crap. You know when that the change was there. Here it's just one character slowly became another. It's like Aquaman of, you know, as you like to pretend there's an Aquaman of Earth 2 and uh, an Aquaman of Earth 1, which there isn't. But there's no clear line of when that happened other than Roy Thomas's fantasies in All-Star Squadron. Here, you know, they, they, they pick Adventure Comics number 250 as the what they decide is the changing point. Now, I haven't read that particular issue, so I don't know what happened in it. But, you know, for some reason they decided that was when things changed over. Maybe I, that was re- retelling of his origin. It was, I, 1950, yeah, yeah. it was 1958. So, Yeah, I haven't read it either. I'm going to bet that that was the one where they gave him a new origin. And so they just said, oh, okay, that's the new one. Because that's, that's kind of, in my mind, that's what happened with Aquaman. When Aquaman got a new origin... To me, I'm like, well, that's the beginning of the new Aquaman. It's, he's got a different origin than the one we're familiar with. Yeah. Well, in this case, maybe he grew the goatee. I don't know. So. No, no, because he had no. He didn't grow the goatee until the late '60s. Oh, okay. Yeah, he he looked like the he looked like when he joined the Justice League, he looked like the Golden Age Green Lantern. He had the that's true. the red green glove, arrow. green arrow. He had the you know clean shaven and the whole bit. Yeah, that's true. Good point. So uh, I love the logo. I've always loved that logo. 
I don't know where it first appeared, but that logo is just very sharp. Very sharp, very sharp. No pun intended there. Oh, now, um, this is more of the classic origin of him being you know, stranded on the island and having to learn to survive and you know all that that you, you know from Green Arrow. It's interesting here. Roy Harper is kind of glazed over in here. Like, I thought he'd get more of a mention, but, you know, there's not a lot here. Uh, well, you they get gave also, his own listing later on, so. I suppose that's true. So, is that in the, the, the special drug issue? I don't remember. Yes, but, that's what they did, a special drug issue. <laughs> well, I mean, that was a big thing in the 80s. You do drug-related comics. Remember New Teen Titans yes, had one? Yes. And, anyway, so Green Arrow shoots an arrow in the, in the surprint. He's, he's knitting, grabbing someone with his net arrow. It shows him on the island. Uh, you see Oliver Queen's handsome face. Uh, then you get... Um, He's grabbing Black Canary with his arm arrow. Yes, and it's the Black Canary, at that point, current costume. The sort of one, the jazzercise outfit that didn't last too terribly Designed long. by Stephen DiStefano. Was it really? Yes, it was. I've always liked that costume. In fact, um, I, I own a couple different Black Canary action figures, and um, I did buy that one because I dig that uniform. So There's an action I'm... figure in that costume? Yes! <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. But, I think it's part of the, uh, I remember right, I think it was the Justice League uh, International line. Really? Uh, wow. Because well, she okay. was in there for uh, seven issues in okay. that costume. So. Wow. All right. Um, uh, I will say before we move off, I just looked that Adventure Comics number 250 is not Green Arrow, is not a new origin for Green Arrow. It's just a pretty much generic Green Arrow story. So I get the sense somebody at the DC just arbitrarily picked an issue of Adventure Comics and said, that's the first one. Could be. Could very well be. Next up is Green Arrow, Earth 2 Green Arrow, Golden Age Green Arrow by Green George. Jeez, oh, Pete. Yeah, see, you did it the other way. Now I'm doing it this way. <laughs> All right. Uh, Green Lantern, Golden Age Green Lantern by George Freeman. And this is a super it, – it's a tiny drawing because there's a lot of text, but it's a really sharp drawing. It I is. really like that picture of Alan Scott. Yeah, George Freeman to me, another guy, really underrated. He, he, didn't, he doesn't do a lot of comics work. So I'm getting the sense that he probably must do other things in the art world than, than comics. But, uh, boy, he is re- this is a beautiful piece. You can, like, feel the wind blowing his cape up and all the little details. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Well, the, you know, we always say that they show the close-up of the face without the mask. Well, they got the show, close-up of his face, but it's sort of at a side angle, and you're looking down at it, and he's talking into a cool 1940s microphone. I mean, just it, it, that little shot alone. I mean, it looks like a star, man. Yeah, that, is, that is a star. You got the train. You get all this stuff. Really nice. Um, lot to talk about with this character. I'm going to try not to spend too much time because I could spend hours talking about Alan Scott. Uh, didn't know his middle name was Wellington. News to me. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, obviously, at this point, he was part of the All-Star Squadron, so he was appearing in comics. Now, some things – I reading this origin here, I know a lot about Alan Scott, but I didn't necessarily know his origin at this point. And reading it just blew my mind recently because, like, the Starheart – I thought all that was post-crisis retcon. I mean, I knew about something came, and I will flame three times. I knew all that. But I didn't realize it had been identified as the Starheart by this point. I thought all that came much later as a retcon. So, I mean, I'm sure it was still a retcon. But, um, you know, as far as calling it the Starheart and being connected with Guardians of the Universe. But I didn't realize it was already done by this point. I dig how it says, you know, I will – this basically this meteor fell to Earth and it said, I will flame three times. Um, the first time she'll bring um, death, the second time will bring life, the third time will bring power. Thankfully, Alan was the third. So, now, also, I, one thing that I never picked up on is, well, I guess I didn't. He was on a train, and the train exploded. And that was part of uh, how him surviving was part of the deal. 
I didn't think much about that until I read it recently because if you read the James Robinson's Earth 2, Alan Scott gets his powers by surviving a train wreck. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, I didn't even pick up on that, that Robinson had done his homework and connected it. I thought, thought that was pretty cool. Now, at this point in history, Jade and Obsidian, that whether they were actually his children or not, was questionable still. So um, it's also interesting how his powers evolved. I mean, he didn't start off as insanely powerful as he became by the end. By the end, I mean, it was pretty much a wish fulfillment. He could do anything. You know, really, I think his ring was probably, if you look back at the history of what he could do, more powerful than Hal Jordan's because he could just, anything you think of he could do. It's sort of like George Reeves and the Superman TV show, come up with a new power every month and never use it again. Now, this is the first time I came across this mention of Ian Carcool and how it kept all the JSA members young. And that would that would just stay in my mind for years until I finally read that issue. It was like, wow, who is this Ian Carcool? This must be amazing, whatever that this was. Yeah, it was okay. So. <laughs> now, I met Marty Nodell, the man who created this character back in the 90s. He did a signing at the comic shop I worked at. Wow. And actually, I actually have hang- – I don't have a lot of um, original art hanging in my office. I guess I should. But anyway – um, one of the few things hanging in my office is a framed picture, uh, draw, a framed drawing done and colored by Marty Nodell of uh, Alan Scott. Very nice. So it's pretty cool, got to say. So are, are you as wildly passionate about this character as me, or is he more of a, like, hey, he's okay? Or, uh... I, not the character, but this drawing. I, the, 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 like, if someone – I look at this and I'm like, I wish DC had done a 1940s-era comic and draw, had George Freeman draw it. Uh-huh. I would have bought that book. Like, if they had done Green Lantern <laughs> of Earth, of Earth 2, drawn by Green George Freeman, i had been like, I'll buy it. It looks fantastic. I think this is probably my favorite listing of the book. Would have been nice if um, he'd done a couple issues of All-Star Squad or something. Oh, that would have been awesome. He did, he did an Aquaman special that was really good. He's a really, really talented artist. It's nice. It's very nice. Yeah. Love it. You know, and... and uh, uh, I am very passionate about the character. I mean, if all the Green Lanterns were to just wither up and die, and we could only be left with two, I'd take, I'd take Kyle Rayner and Alan Scott. Wow. Yeah. So, next up is the most boring man in the DC One universe. of the ones, from Shag just said, well, he wants to die. Hal Jordan, yep. Green Lantern. Hal Jordan. There it is, folks. Um, I think Hal Jordan is so boring. So, anyway, uh, I probably just pissed off a lot of people with that. But, He's got killer abs, though. You gotta say. Look at that drawing. He does. He does. Yeah, he could... Sell exercise machines. Uh, Gil Kane did the art, as he should. You know, you get your classic Green Lantern logo. It is a very nice picture by Gil Kane of Green Lantern mm-hmm. and all the serpent. You've got Evan Sir, Hal doing a couple different things, close up of his face. I mean, it's a really nice drawing. I really like it. Um, great profile, especially. Hal's face looks really cool. I like the shadowing going on there. I think this needed like to they... be two pages, frankly. What's that? I think this needed to be two pages. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to give Barry Allen, well, I guess Barry Allen was going out, so it kind of makes sense to give him two pages. But yeah, it would not have hurt. Green Lantern, Hal Jordan is a, is a major, major part of the DC universe. It, it certainly wouldn't have hurt to give him two pages. That's fair. And uh, you, you get uh, you get the mention of his cousin, the other Hal Jordan, who's airwave up there. I like that. <laughs> uh, also, at this point, Hal Jordan had actually retired as Green Lantern. Right, which so is this- why he doesn't get the front cover spot. Right, exactly, because uh, because John Stewart was headlining the Green Lantern comic at this point. So um, you get a lot of facts in this one, and not a lot of personality. So it's another one of those where it's, it reads sort of like a official handbook of the Marvel Universe, where you get facts, facts, facts. Not a lot of sense for who the character is. So you know, like I said, that's all I got. You needed two pages. I really think I thought that about Green Arrow as well. I thought Green Arrow needed two pages. I think some of the, these are the big heavy hitters of the DCU, and they need a little more space. But 
That's, that's, that's very fair. Uh, next up, you've got Green Lantern John Stewart by Joe Staten. And I have said some things over the years about Joe Staten's art uh, in the Guy Gardner series in the 90s. But let me say, right here in 1985, this man is a boss. This drawing is so cool. John Stewart has got an awesome action pose. I love the serpent. It's, it's close up of his face. It's very stylistic. Uh, him battling Star Sapphire. Him, you know, wrestling with Cat Matui and not in a sexual way. Um, and then there's all these great sort of speed liney, cross hatching kind of things going on. I love this drawing. Yeah, it's a good piece. Absolutely a good piece. Uh, now, one of the interesting things here about, you know, John is he's not wearing a mask. So, the sir, you know, he's, he's not wearing a mask in the front. He's not wearing a mask in the serpent either. Uh, he was sort of a reluctant hero and didn't want to hide his identity. So. Now, maybe you can help me out here, because this is one thing I'm wondering about. It says, group affiliation, Green Lantern Corps, Justice League of America, supporting member. Yes. He's, what is that? He was well, a he filled in whenever Hal couldn't show up. Oh, okay. His, one of his, the, the, the appearance, I think, the most, uh, when I think about him in the JLA, is Justice League number 110, the man who murdered Santa Claus, where okay. they, they call Green Lantern, and at that point, Hal, I think, slips on a bar of soap and knocks himself unconscious. So, so the ring... Mm-mm. What? Are you serious? What? Is that really what happened? Yes. Bull crap. Really? I thought you were what? just making that no. up. No. What do you don't get on my case? I didn't write it. Len Wein wrote it. Talk to him. He slipped on a bar of soap. I believe he slips on a bar of soap out. and knocks unconscious. So the ring, the <laughs> ring, the ring is like we got to find a Green Lantern. So they find John, and John helps out the Justice League in that story. And it's John Stewart Green Lantern is the one at the end of the story because they meet these poor kids. And the poor kids are like, can you help us, like, give us money? And John Stewart is like, I can't do that. The Guardians won't me allow it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And at the end of the story, the, these kids' housing, houses get blown up by the key. And Green Lantern recreates the buildings but makes them new and clean without dirt and rats and all the other stuff. So he ends up giving these kids what they wanted, but he does it by still, still following the laws of the Guardians. So it was, it was a great little story, and it was a great character beat, and I've always think positively towards the character after that one story. Yeah, that's that's a nice little, uh, a nice story. I like that yeah, idea. Yeah, it's a, that's a great, if you ever read that story, number one, Justice League number 110, The Man Who Murdered Santa Claus, go ahead and read it. It's a classic JLA story. Well, I've always enjoyed Jon Stewart. I mean, some some of his comics aren't my favorites, but I, I think he's a neat character. Like, I, when I say, I, I'm speaking of sort of like Mosaic. Like, Mosaic started off really good, but by the end, I was like, I want this comic to end. But, um, but he's, he's a neat guy. He, you know, he really was a breakout star for DC with Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Oh, yeah. I mean, big, big star. In fact, there's a great episode where uh, there's all this time shifting going on. And, he, and, he, and, you know, John Stewart's there doing stuff, and all of a sudden he transforms into Hal Jordan. And that was Hal Jordan's first appearance in the Justice League comic. And he just goes, I'm Hal Jordan. I'm up to speed. Let's go. <laughs> it's just like that was awesome. But, uh, so, yeah, it's a, I, I, they're using the, the, the logo here, which is the logo from the comic at this point, so which is nice. And um, I, I like this piece. I like, the, I like the history. I like the piece. I like everything about it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, the powers of weapons. They just literally lifted the exact same text from Hal's and just changed the name, his name. So, which makes sense. Yeah, but it's just kind of funny. Next one is another kapow, and I, this one really is a big kapow moment for me. It is the Green Lantern Corps drawn by. Wait for it, Brian Boland. Oof. This is beautiful. This again, as a kid, you know, this here, here I am, a thirteen-year-old kid, just salivating over this entry. 
just going like, oh my gosh, just looking at all the different characters, looking at the variety of aliens out there that are part of this Green Lantern Corps, absolutely made me fall in love with the idea of the Green Lantern Corps, made me want to be one as a kid, <laughs> although ironically, I like the color blue better. So I envisioned myself as the Blue Lantern. <laughs> little, little did I know that that would come to pass. Uh, I mean, this entry literally blew my mind. Now, I went back just recently, and it was, I was like, why did Brian Boland draw this? I don't understand. I'm thankful, but why? Found out that he did quite a few covers of the Green Lantern comic in yes. the 80s. Yes, he did. Um, now, uh, Rob, you knowing me and you looking at this entry, you know where I'm going. Cat mm-hmm. uh, Matui is... Sexy as hell. Well, Brian Boland drew some of the most alluring women in comics. He just flat out did. Just wow, just gorgeous. I I, I better stop talking about it. Yeah. Anyway, yep. Tomar Ray looks great. I mean, everybody looks Brian great. Boland. It's a Brian Boland drawing. <laughs> everybody looks great. Fine, fine, fine. I don't have to sit here and say everybody looks great, but you get a lot of variety of alien species and stuff here. And, the, and it's interesting over the years, like. Anytime a Green Lantern, one of, the, one of these Green Lanterns has died or sort of faded away, it's like whenever the Corps comes back, they still bring back someone from that race. Just because iconically, you know, everyone wants to see the little head guy, you know, whose body's pretty much a head. Or everyone wants to see, you know, the, the potato-looking guy with the, with the hair coming out, with the, the plants coming out of his head, or, or the crystal guy. Everyone wants to see these dudes. The giant so eyeball always Green Lantern. Be someone, what's that? The giant eyeball Green Lantern. Yeah, so there's always going to be somebody who you know, looks like that in, you know, on the team, so that, it cracks me up. Um, now, interesting in the origin here, it says that Green Lanterns originally carried guns. They, they carried a gun that would emanate the green power and then change it to a ring after a while. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Fascinating. Either. I like how Chip, the Chip, the little cute squirrel or chipmunk or whatever he is, is a, is a daredevil. That cracks me up. And you get your green man here from Omega Men. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a beautiful drawing. I was never into the Green Lantern Corps, but this, you know, was like, wow, made me, made me kind of want to. Cause, and even the little inset heads are great. They all have little personalities. Like, Katmatui looks a little skeptical. Aresia is winking at the camera. It, it, he just, Bolin was just, well, not was, is just so dang good. Yeah, just absolutely magical. And the one that probably, one of the, the character who probably captured my imagination the most as a young boy was Charlie Vickers. Because here you have Charlie Vickers, who they acknowledge is from Earth um, and was a ring slinger for a short time. And it's like, to me, that blew my mind. And I, I, in my mind, I sort of like decided he should be in the Teen Titans. Because he, you know, everyone, you know, Superman had Supergirl, Batman had, you know, Robin and Batgirl, and Wonder Woman had Wonder Girl. Everyone had these teenage psychics, except for Green Lantern. He did not have a teenage sidekick. So it, to me, I was like, Charlie Vickers should absolutely be his teenage sidekick. So in my mind, I had all these Charlie Vickers adventures in, in my head. So for all I know, he appeared in, I don't know, one comic or something. I don't know. I love all these Again, reminiscences you have of yourself warping, as a child. War, warping the perceptions of Children of America. Yeah. Who's who? Thank you. I, I dig the Green Lantern Corps logo. I don't, I don't know if this was used on the comic or not. But it says Green Lantern Corps, and it's being created out of green energy. And it's all these hands, you know, with rings blasting the, 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 the logo Green Lantern Corps up there, but you get all these funky look, looking different art, like one's a tentacle, a little tiny hand, you know, weird little appendages. Just, it's cool. Mm-hmm. Very, I, this entry excites me. And so is Captain Tui. So, the Green Man. <laughs> cool logo for the Green Man. Absolutely love the logo. Green Man is sort of a anthropomorphic frog. 
is what he essentially is. And he was a member of the Green Lantern Corps originally, and then the Omega Men. And uh, they, the species didn't really believe in individuality, but he did. He was all about being individual. So that's kind of what got him uh, along the path he ended up on. One of the interesting things about these characters is that their blood is made up of poison, so the, the, so which is kind of weird. Um, oh, you know, I didn't mention the artist, Sean McManus. Sean McManus. And uh, a really nice Sean McManus drawing. I love me some Sean McManus from Dr. Fate. I know you liked him from Omega Men. Now, everything I just said pretty much ends my understanding of this character. As a reader of Omega Men, what, can you tell us a little more about this guy? Uh, well, he was basically a, f- a former Green Lantern that ends up, I think he gets kicked out of the, they reprimand him, and he loses his, his uh, power, so he ends up joining the Omega Men after that. Was he a fun character? Was he, like, he straight, when I look at him, it's like, he strikes to me like he was probably the comedic relief. I don't remember him being the comedic relief. I, I really don't. I, 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 I feel like this is a character that didn't really need a whole page. <laughs> I think, uh, despite, despite the fact that there's a lot of history there, I feel like this is maybe a little much to give him a whole page by himself. I I don't remember him figuring that much into the Omega Men. I just don't I don't have a lot of memories of him being that significant a character. I could be wrong, but I just don't remember. See, that's so funny because, like, again, uh, who's who warping perceptions? Like to me, he was like, you know, I I envisioned okay, he's part of the Omega Men. He must be like, you know. They have a core group of, I don't know, six or ten guys in the team, and every issue, Green Man's probably in the background cracking jokes. It's no, kinda... no. I, from what I remember, no. I don't remember that. Wow. Okay. So there you go. That's who. And again, this one, I really get I, – I have a lot deeper connection to this issue and thought more, a lot more about these characters, too, just simply because it was my first issue. So. All right. Grimbor. <laughs> That's great. Rich- Ridiculous name for a great-looking character. <laughs> Craig Hamilton and Dick Giordano drew this. The guy is wearing, like, a black, tight weightlifter kind of, like, you know, Speedo kind of chest cover thing. I don't know what you call it. He that. hangs out at a club called The Toolbox, so let's just say that. <laughs> and uh, he has chains all around him. He's got chains up along his shoulders. He's got a chain belt. He's carrying a chain. He's got, like, you know, strapped leather strap bracers and boots. <laughs> he, now, as redunculous as he looks, Craig Hamilton makes it work. Yes. Craig Hamilton makes this look awesome. He yes. looks like a, you know, a strong man kind of character, like a, you know, a circus strong man, almost like design. And it works here. He's got his awesome white temples. I love his squinty, almost 1940s look. You know, he looks great in the front drawing. Now in the background, you get, him, he's a Legion of Superheroes villain, by the way, folks. He's fighting uh, the Legion in the background. He's got them all bound up because that's kind of his gimmick. He is, he is the best forger of locks, chains, and restraints in the known galaxy. They should have him square off against Mr. Miracle. That would be a hell of a fight. No <laughs> kidding. Um, you get a close-up of his face in the background, which doesn't look – you know, that looks like a Steve Lytle background. Nah, that's, that's Greg. Okay, I think it's but the face, design, yeah. the face in the foreground and the background look entirely different. I mean, uh, other than the white temples, yeah. I would never say that's the same character. I'm going to suggest that the background image. I'm, I'm going to have to ask Craig about this directly. Uh, I'm going to suggest that the background image was inked by Craig Hamilton, and the, the foreground is by Dick Giordano. The front one looks more Dick Giordano-ish than the back background is. Oh, I could that be could wrong. Be... I could be wrong, but I'm just. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? The yep. faces look entirely different. Yeah, they don't look like the same guy. His head shape yeah. is different. Yeah, they're, they're, they don't look terribly similar. So, Well, the foreground, regardless of how ridiculous the costume is, I think he looks amazing. He Again, looks I, think it all, 
What's that? It looks mean. I think it comes down to the face. Honestly, the face is like, that's one of the best drawn comic faces I've seen in a long time. It looks great. I th- now, <clears throat> now we're going to get to where you know I'm going. Um, <laughs> Grimbor went through, went down this chain of a life of crime because he was, a, he was sort of taken in by this young mutant woman named Karma or Charma, depending on how you want to say it. And she possessed the uncontrollable power that made women want to hurt her and men to help her. And she basically enslaved him. And he, you know, that's that's kind of where he ended up going. Uh, he worked for her, uh, with her, whatever, however you want to say it. And then once she died, he swore revenge against the Legion and, and just never wouldn't stop. He was still under her power even though she was gone. Now, that... She, they show her in the foreground in what I can only assume is probably a Dave Cockrum designed costume due to the cutout holes, but sexy as hell. Uh, she's basically standing there like in a bathing suit with some really sexy stockings. Yeah, I think I think, I think the power to make men want to do things for her comes from the costume. It could be. It could be. <laughs> you know, or, or what would be better is if actually in reality she was hideous, but this is how guys see her or something. That would be kind of cool. But um, And there's this really cool effect around her head. Like a little, it's supposed to represent, I guess, her power, but it, it just, it sort of makes you zero in. It's almost like a bullseye on, on her, her pretty face, and it's just a neat effect. And uh, I, I would follow her, that's for sure. <laughs> I think she's this also, is... She's got some chains going on there a little bit, too, or like a lynx, sort of like big metal lynx holding her costume together. Kind of, you know, well, it's sort of, he's, you know, he's all about locks and chains yes. and stuff. I think this is Craig Hamilton's only non-Aquaman-related piece for Who's Who, because he did Ocean Master... Um, which, and he was doing, he was working on the miniseries, but I think this is the only non-Aquaman character he does. I could be wrong, though. Well, I do like, in the Legion, you've got um, Superboy, Timberwolf. It's kind of hard to tell who that one is from the side. It's probably Light Lass, I would There's guess. Chameleon Boy and Shadow Lass and Cosmic Boy. Yeah. I love Chameleon Boy. Not only is he bound, his antennas are bound, too. <laughs> now, why is Charma or Karma kneeling on an anvil? I just think it's just a design thing. Oh, well, he's a he's a forger. He makes. He oh, makes that makes t- sense. Sure. Okay, took me a minute. Okay, I, visually it's fun, but when you really break down into it, it's really kind of ridiculous. But anyway, okay. pretty cool. Now, Craig Hamilton doesn't really have a connection to the Legion either, so it's kind of strange that he drew this one. Right, so. like I said, I'm not sure why. I'll, again, I, I should have asked Craig. I didn't. I don't know why I didn't think of it. I will have to ask him why how we ended up doing this because I said he was working on the Aquaman miniseries. They had him do Ocean Master a few issues later. Uh, but I'm not sure why they would ask him to do Grimboar. Yeah. Hmm. I'm glad they did. Yes, absolutely. I'm sort of vamping for time. Why? Because I'm, so I'm, I'm trying to bring up something that's relevant to our next entry, folks, where we're going to talk about the Grim Ghost, who has a really great, you know, sort of dramatic name that wasn't originally that dramatic. Uh, he was originally the Gay Ghost. And then you know, at some point in the when they decided to do this entry, they're like, mm, no, we can't do that. So they changed it to the Grim Ghost. Actually, they changed it to the Grim Ghost, I believe, for this entry. Um, he appeared uh, quite a bit in 1942 to 1945 and then just vanished and wasn't seen again until this entry. Uh, well, they reprinted his story in, in 1978 in a Wonder Woman tree paperback, but this was really his first new appearance. So I think I believe this is the point where they changed his name from the Gay Ghost to the Grim Ghost. And uh, art by Bill Sienkiewicz. Wow. Very nice piece. I mean, this is sort of a, a breakout entry where, again, you would think that if you just read this, you'd like, this This is character's got to be a major player. This is so cool. 
and yet he hadn't been seen in 30 years. <laughs> uh, 40 years. Actually, 40 years. Sorry. Uh, interesting character. His name's Keith Everett. He was murdered and uh, lost his love and became a ghost who inhabited a painting. And then in 1941, his lost love – I'm sorry. It was, that all happened in like the year 1700. Sorry. And then his, in 1941, his lost love, a descendant of hers who looked just like his lost love, came to this house where the painting was. And he started to become more active again. He he was able to come out of the painting, and he was able to be a ghost free roaming around. He then inhabited his – this is a little complicated, but his l- lost love's descendant's boyfriend uh, named Charles Collins, who was a real D-bag, dies. And he took over that guy's body. And so now he's able to go and have adventures as a ghost, or he's walking around in Charles Collins' body. And every time he leaves Charles Collins' body uh, to go do a ghost adventure, the body just collapses, which is hilarious <laughs> because she just thought he was a flake and would just and pass out, <laughs> which cracks me up. So he thought he was having fits and stuff. But it, it reads kind of interesting. He went out and had a lot of adventures. He went on to, uh, as Charles Collins, he went on to join, like, England's Royal Air Force and the U.S. military and all this stuff. And he fought lots of nat- Nazis, the Ratsies. And uh, it sounds like he had a lot of cool adventures. I don't know how they keep as Golden Age stories now, but this sounds neat. And Bill Sienkiewicz's drawing is awesome. I mean, he looks very much like a – how would you describe that? Is it, is it a privateer costume? Yeah, or? yeah. He looks – yeah, he looks like a – not a pirate so much, but yeah, like a privateer kind of guy. It, it is. It's a really great drawing. I've never read any of these stories, and I kind of want to. I'm sure they're – you know, they're not as cool as the Sienkiewicz drawing indicates, but they, they – I, I am interested in them. You know what? I forgot. He, he had an issue of Secret Origins in... Yes, he did. In the 80s. I wonder who drew that. I'm, I'm getting to it as quickly as I can here, so I don't want to keep people waiting. Roy Thomas wrote it. Mike ba- uh, Mike, Mike Bear. Oh, he'd be good for this style. Drew it. Ooh, I have to go back and dig that. I'm sure I own the issue. Um, in fact, it's got Phantom Girl on the cover. I must own this issue. So All of a sudden, Shaq's going to talk a lot faster now. <laughs> Anyway, really nice piece. Um, again, probably a character that doesn't deserve it, deserve this much of an entry, but uh, because you know he hadn't been around for forty years. But by golly, I'm glad they did, and it's really, really a nice piece. So, next up is the Guardian. Um, we're talking about the Jack Kirby Fourth World kind of Jimmy Olsen connected Guardian. Straight up, hate the logo. I say I like the logo. Hate it. Hate it. Too cutesy. Hmm. It's trying to – it builds his name, the Guardian. Each letter is representative of his shield. If you've ever seen a shield, it's he's got a very uh, iconic-looking shield. It's, it's a circular shield with a, I don't know, squared-off bottom part, sort of, kind of. I don't know how to describe that otherwise. That seems, that's good enough. You're an artist. Whatever. Right, you tell them. Fine. Uh, <laughs> it's done by Jack Kirby and Greg Theakston. Um, I like the I like the image. It's okay. Uh, it's not the best. I mean, Guardian looks a little st- – uh, uh, what do you call that? Rigid. Yeah, I, I, I don't think this this whole issue of who's who is not to me a great one for Jack Kirby. I still love the Granny Goodness one, but um, there has these all these hoods in the background shooting at the Guardian, and the bullets are bouncing off his shield. I do like there's this one enormous shell that's flying right at the camera. Um, if you look at the top right beneath the Guardian logo, right. There's a bullet casing, and it's enormous. I'm like, what is that? And I realized, oh, it's all the bullet shells, and it's bouncing back at the camera, which is kind of a cool perspective thing. Now, the origin stuff is more interesting to me here. Like, 
I got it. I don't know when the retconning started because I don't think it happened by Kirby. I don't think. I'm guessing it's probably more Roy Thomas and All Star Squadron. I don't really know. Someone could tell us. But turns out uh, Jim Harper is who's a secret identity is Roy Harper Speedy. He's his uncle. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. Uh, sometimes writers get a little too in love with that stuff. Yeah. He uh, also he was trained by Joe Morgan, the same guy who trained the Atom and Wildcat. Yeah, this. I think I'll, I think this is retconning type stuff. Not everybody has to know everybody. Yep. And then uh, the only other thing worth mentioning, I would say, is that Mal from Teen Titans actually wore a Guardian costume for a while. So, That's Mal, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, um, there's been periods of time where I've enjoyed this character, but for the most part, he's not one of my favorites. Yeah, so. I, the, I, the pose really kind of kills it for me. He looks like he's like hailing a cab or something. <laughs> yes, so. but and but he's connected to the Newsboys Legion, which is pretty cool. So, and I think they handled him pretty cool in the uh, Superman like late '80s, early '90s Superman books, Jerry Ordway's books, which mm-hmm. were pretty. I liked those when he was a clone. So. As drawn by Jerry Ordway, looks fantastic, of course. And well, uh, Jerry above reproach Ordway. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> we have to work on that. Yeah, we're getting there. We're, 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 we're zeroing in on the right phrase for him. Gil Kane next on Guardians of the Universe, of as course. it should be. Yes. Now, interestingly enough, the Guardians look kind of different here than the Guardians we've come to know. Like, I mean, sure, they're blue, they're tiny, they've got the big foreheads and the white hair, but the facial structure is different than what I'm used to. Uh, I don't know if this is the way Gil Kane originally drew them or just sort of reinterpreted them, because even concurrently in Crisis on Infinite Earths, they didn't necessarily look like this. Uh, you know, I don't know. There you go. Okay. Um, they mentioned there's discussion here about Krona and, uh, you know, and cause crisis of infinite earths was going on at this time. And Krona was a big deal in crisis and how he looked back and saw the origins of the universe. And that's what caused the fracturing of the multiverse. So, uh, there's a lot of discussion about Krona in this and, uh, you know, overall it's a nice picture. You got, you get, you get the guardians, you get the, the power battery in the background and their face. And I poured over this one. Not that I was fascinated with the characters, but I was fascinated with how the Green Lanterns came to be. And, you know, and throughout this issue, there's a lot of mention of the Manhunters. Because the Manhunters, you know, were an effort to be you know, the first set of Green Lanterns, if you will. And uh, that, to me, just was like, what are these Manhunters? I must find out more! So uh, it kind of sparked my imagination. I, I feel like I should add, uh, uh, Darlene Tracy just walked by and saw this drawing, and she said, he's cute. Aw, well, they are cute. There you go. I, I, I will have to suggest this. I, I, I have to think that, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Erwin um, Hasten. Have you ever seen what he looks like? No. Okay, because Erwin Hasten drew the original Green Lantern 40 strip. He didn't co-create the character, but he was one of the early artists. And Erwin Hasten, I was a former instructor at Qbert, uh, is about four foot nothing, huh? uh, bald, and has white hair on the sides. So I have to think that the Guardians of the Universe maybe were designed after Erwin Hayson because he looks like – if you painted him blue, he looks like one of the Guardians of the Universe. Now, Marty Nodell is also about four foot nothing. Just so oh, you know. okay. Well, okay. Maybe <laughs> then whoever designed – maybe Gil Kane designed these. Maybe he just figured, you know what? Let's, they both look like that, so let's do it. <laughs> uh, then last page, of course, is our – uh, my my beloved page, I love every issue that goes on, tells you where you could find these characters and gives you some sneak peek covers of comics coming out the ne- um, in the same month or next month. Uh, you get really nice uh, Orion cover here of a Orion special. Get a Batman making out with, that's probably at this point, I would guess Nocturna. Yes, sure. Nocturna. Yeah. Uh, Green Lantern cover, uh, Amethyst, Princess of Gemeral, which is a 
from this little tiny stat of it is a gorgeous cover. That looks like a Perez. I'm not sure who that is. That's really, really impressive. Uh, you get Crisis Number Nine, and you get an awesome All Star Squadron cover. So uh, with the Monster Society of Evil. Awesome. <laughs> yep. So uh, I like how it talks about Garnet Uthel appear in the special. You get the Amethyst. You get a little bit of a tease as the origin of Gemworld is revealed this summer in the pages of Amethyst. So if you would want to care about that, that would be there for you. <laughs> and the only other one that really kind of jumped out at me was Gravediggers. His was kind of different. Everyone else was like, you know, here's, you know, here you can see the character here. Here's what they do there. But Gravediggers said, Star of Men of War was seen in all 24 issues. <laughs> what? <laughs> so there was a comic from 1977 to 1979. And he was in every issue. How bizarre. Anyway. All right, folks. That is Who's Who, number nine. Um, man, I love this comic. I really, really, really do. Again, such exposure to such a wide, diverse section of the DC Universe just just warms my heart. So, uh, Next up, folks, we're going to tackle some listener feedback. What we're going to do is we have done some pretty lengthy shows. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, well, if they don't listen to Fire... If they just listen to Who's Who, they may not realize what we're talking about. We've done some, like... No, I'm not kidding. We've actually done a four-hour podcast recently. Uh, so we've been punishing our listeners for a while. So what we thought we – who's who? I mean, we're going to – we're still going to touch on a little bit of listener feedback. But we're just going to hit some of the some of the higher points here, um, just brush strokes. You know, we've gotten a lot of listener feedback over the months, and we appreciate it. Who's who's a little bit of a different show, so we're not going to, you know, hit every single thing that we got. But we do want to mention, especially like the personal anecdotes on how people came to who's who. I'll give you an example. Got a comment from Ange, who runs the Supergirl podcast, and he said he was in his early teens when Who's Who came out. He loved the book so much that he decided um, they didn't need to be in pristine condition in a bag. So that to this day, his Who's Who remained unbagged in a pile on top of his long boxes. So, and uh, I, I like that. that. That's a really kind of cool story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're uh, not meant to be kept in mint condition. You know, they're meant to be used, and you know, they're reference material. That's what they're meant for. Yeah, I think I've I think I've told you this, Rob. I um, I have uh, unfortunately a lot of bookshelves. Not unfortunately, but I have I have far too many. That's the unfortunate thing. Bookshelves in my office here, and a lot of them have trade paperbacks and stuff on there. And it, and I'd never intended for it to have trade, so I've just become more of a trade guy recently. But ever since 1985, I have kept Who's Who on a shelf in my <laughs> office, not in a long box, but in a shelf, and it is literally on the shelf above my dictionaries. I'm not kidding you. Now, why I still have a dictionary, I don't know. I could probably get rid of that. I haven't used it in probably 20 years and just look online nowadays. But literally, all my who's who are on a shelf. I'm not kidding. As a reference material. <laughs> um, I want to also give a shout-out. Thank you to Doug Zawizka. Da, da, Zawizka. Doug Zawizka. Doug Wizzyweek. Um, over, he gave us a mention over on his blog, uh, my greatest adventure, 80 blogspot.com, which is a doom patrol blog. Thank you so much. He gave a shout out to the show. We appreciate that. Also, thank you to count, uh, count Druncula, our buddy, Ryan Daly, who has been mentioning the show over on his black canary pod, uh, black canary blog, which is flowers and fish nuts, fish nets. And you can find that. <laughs> I like talking. Uh, you can find it at black canary also, if you're going to talk about our show, by the way, on the interwebs, uh, if you don't mind, especially if you're like on Twitter or something, we do have a hashtag, which would be great if you guys could use. Help get the word out there. Uh, I use it quite frequently. It'd be nice maybe if my partner used it once in a while as well. Just a suggestion. <laughs> anyway, it's a uh, hashtag. Sorry about What's that? that. Sorry about that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you, Joe, you know, you could at least make an effort. Anyway, it's uh, <laughs> Pound FW Podcast. So that's Pound FW Podcast. That's short for Fire and Water Podcast. I know this is the Who's Who Podcast, but it is part of the it's Fire all one big thing, yeah. Yeah, it's all one big family. Um, I have to read this other comment, just to get back from Ange for a second, where he mentioned, uh, uh, I am hoping that the gang approaches composite Superman in terms of running gags for the Who's Who podcast. While I freely admit that the gang are hardly my favorite character, as a Supergirl fan, I feel the need to defend them. If I weren't a Supergirl fan, I think I'd probably be lamenting their inclusion as much as anyone else. I think that's absolutely, uh, you know, I think it's very honest of Ange to admit that he wants them in the book, but it's only because he's a Supergirl fan. And if he wasn't, right. he would think they're just as lame as everybody else. <laughs> um, we got uh, really nice comments from Siskoid, who's one of our good buddies, and he's also one of our sort of resident who's who historians. Yes. So uh, I'm not going to read him now again, just because I don't want to keep the show too long. But he went through the last issue, and um, actually, Ange did too. A lot of our listeners will go through character by character with us. And give us their thoughts, which is absolutely great. I appreciate that. But one of the things Siskoid does that is amazing is he does on his own blog. I mentioned earlier uh, about the Ghost Patrol. He does the Siskoid's blog of geekery and does posts on Who's Who characters. And he called, the posts are called Who's This? And he's done a whole bunch. And, and recently he did the Forgotten Villains. He did one on Adam Master, Faceless Hunter, Cracklow, greatest name ever, Mr. Poseidon, and Ultivac. And uh, you can find all those over at siskoidblog.ca. And just search for the label, Who's This? He also continued on, did the Golden Age Firebrand, and he did The Gambler. So those are just so cool. I don't know if you go over there and read those entries, but I think they're just fantastic. They are, yeah. Got um, a short novel from our buddy Diablo Frank. So um, just going to call out a couple of those. Uh, yeah, I just like, he calls, I don't know why he calls Steve Lytle. Steve <laughs> I, this 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 crack is brutal, but I, I love that the art recalled Kurt Swan by actually being good. <laughs> that's Frank. Frank said that. Yeah. Earth, Chris, Earth Two Chris. That's Frank that said that, not us. Yes. So, um, <laughs> again, in the interest of time, please go. What you need to do is just go out to Firestorm Fan, and uh, you can read all these comments. They're great because I mean, especially if you're reading the issues with us or looking at them, go, go check these comments because they're really great, insightful thoughts. So. But because Frank is certifiably insane, I'm just going to skip them. So. Uh, next up is Anthony Durso, The Toy Room, who is also uh, another one of our resident Who's Who historians. I mean, this guy consistently tells us more information than, than I could ever imagine. Uh, I do like this. Uh, under the gang, he wrote, Wasted Space Alert! <laughs> Um, I like that he writes in The Fiddler. It always bothered me that the character is all dressed up, playing a violin, and yet he's called The Fiddler. Normally, I associate a fiddler with something out of Ewa. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, he, he sort of says something similar like you did about Mega Man. You weren't sure why Green Man got such a big entry. Yeah. He points out Felicity. He said it was another wasted page in the Omega Man that could have been condensed, in his opinion. Yeah, they gave the uh, Omega Man a lot of Omega Man was a big seller, so that's probably why they gave it a lot of space. I think it was a direct-only book. It uh, was. Direct mark, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. yes. So, I mean, they, they saw that as a, a real chance to, to grow that market. So He said, I never really had any interest in these guys outside of their appearances in Green Lantern and New Teen Titans. Right. Hey, you know what? Sing it, Anthony. I am with you there, brother. <laughs> I like his, his, his mention of Firebug, a bad villain who seems to be nothing more than a scene filler when the inmates of Arkham stage a massive escape. <laughs> I think that's absolutely accurate. You need to have guys in the background. Well, the, you know, in the foreground, you've got Joker and Penguin and Riddler. You need to have guys in the background. Firebug fits that, that role quite well. 
Yep. Hey, well, you got to read the next line. This is this is a become a who's who tra- you know, podcast trademark. Give Calendar Man, give me Calendar Man any day of the week over Fire. Yeah, I just chose to lift that out. But I know the cal- Calendar Man and Calculator get a lot of got a get a lot of play on this show. <laughs> strangely enough, <laughs> but um, let's see. All right, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. We, we heard from our buddy Keith Samra. Thank you for that. We heard from Philemon, and he says. Um, this is another one of those anecdotes I like. Does anyone connect certain issues of who's who to childhood memories? Dude, I absolutely do. You're hearing me talk about that right now. He says, I picked up issue number nine, the Green Lantern issue, on a way to visit my grandfather after on a long trip. I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, I'm right there with you, brother. Absolutely. Heard from our good buddy Luke Giaconetti. He also went through the characters uh, one by one and kind of commented on quite a few of them. Now, interesting, he didn't know who Firebrand was. He thought it was an Iron Man bad guy. <laughs> so, um, I hear about Green uh, I'm sorry, Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick. He said, Jay Garrick, uh, Green Lan- Go- Golden Age Flash will always be a favorite of mine. Just a classic in all regards. He says he likes how the image is, uh, I like the image quite a bit for Jay. As far as Flash and the Fiddler, how many ways can you really show this? And they're talking about, how there was a neat drawing on the Flash page and a neat drawing on the Fiddler page, which was essentially the same drawing from two different perspectives. So that was kind of cool. So uh, great layout and imagery. Um, oh, this is going on. I'm sorry, this is going on Barry Allen. Great layout and imagery. Unfortunately, Trial of Flash ran for so long, relatively close to Who's Who when it was published, that it had to be saddled in there. Yeah, that was a shame. Now, he's the guy that loves the Force of the July. Uh, as an outsider's boy, I always dug Mike W. Bars, uh, evil team of five who always match up with the outsiders, and these guys were my favorite of the bunch. Uh, They're perfect foil for the outsiders and match up with Bars' politics really well. The outsiders were weirdos and castoffs when the force was the fire, spunk, pizzazz, white need, baby face crew. Whom, when <laughs> what? Who, when taken at face value, one would assume would be the heroes, but they were servants of a totalitarian masters. The cover of the annual says it all. In 1984, do you know where your freedoms are? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we got. <clears throat> oh, oh, go sorry. ahead. Oh, we got. I was saying we got a comment on Aquaman Trine from Earth to Chris, who really doesn't bother to listen to the Firewater podcast too much, except the hostess episode, I think. But he does listen to the Who's Who's. Uh, he mentions, nice to know I wasn't alone in my disappointment that Jimmy Olsen was featured as Elastic Lad and under his own name. It's always bugged me, as has the inc- exclusion of such essential characters as Perry White, Alfred, Jim Gordon. Many of these characters actually had solo stories at one point or another, so they clearly fit the who's who mean criteria for inclusion as well. Big oversight for the series, finally corrected in the second update. As for the length of the shows, just let them, ra- let them, let them run as long as you like, as far as I'm concerned. I listen to them while I'm at work so they can run a fun eight hours. It won't bother me in the least. Earth 2, Chris. Well, you know what? Maybe next time we'll try and do uh, an extended listener feedback segment or something <laughs> than just to give you an eight-hour podcast. Well, Philemon mentioned earlier that he wants us to cover uh, – or he or she wants us to cover Ambush Bug number three, which is a who's who issue, an informal who's who issue. He wants us to cover that one as well. Oh, that could be fun. to get to that, yeah. Because it, it covers all the really lame-o, super lame-o characters of the DCU. <laughs> Got a comment from Little Russell Burbage from Middleton, Colorado, who uh, said, Rob, I have to comment on your fisherman costume question. If you pull out his recent appearance vis-a-vis who's who, he's wearing this costume. I'm referring to Aquaman number 58 from the 70s. He's wearing this costume right there on the cover. It looks different to me. I guess it's artistic interpretation. It just looks different to me. Uh, heard from Sean M. Myers, heard from Jack Dower, always hear from Jack Dower. Uh, he had a good question. He said, do you think the encyclopedic type books from DK are the modern who's who? 
and how do they compare to the Who's Who format? Would the traditional Who's Who format sell in today's modern comic? No, it wouldn't. I don't think it would either because you can just do, uh, you know, Wikipedia anytime you want. Yeah. Are they the modern day Who's Who? Um, probably. I would also say the the DC encyclopedias they've produced two of are probably modern day Who's Who's as well. That yeah, might be fun. The, yeah. Who's Who really? And if they did it again, would only work as an online comic. That way, you could add pages. You know, it's not permanent. You could add characters. As much as we love Who's Who, they really don't work as a modern format because they are so permanent. You know, and they're they're instantly out of date the minute a new thing happens. So that's the. The problem with yes. that, unfortunately. You could have some pretty cool, like, hyperlinks to, like, you know, you, like the, you know, from a sales perspective. Like the Grim Ghost, click here to, to buy these 1942 comics. Who's Who would work superbly as an e-comic, an e-book yeah. comic. It would work absolutely wonderfully. Uh, it's a sales, sales tool. Yes, and that's it. I love, he does ask, why does Rob hate the Legion? Would he hate them more if the Penguin were to join? <laughs> oh, God. Jack has a sick, sick, sick fascination with the Penguin. Uh, I think he's actually going to – he's planning some sort of celebration or convention when we get to the P issue of the book. So, uh, Alexander Ad- Adrock, we got an email from him. He says, the F issue was great and brought up some memories of first becoming an Aquaman fan. I was starting to delve into back issues despite the ribbing I took from friends. As you know, it was a different world pre-Jeff Johns. We all took some, over some grief – we all took some grief over Aquaman. The Fisherman was the first Aquaman villain I encountered and what that wasn't Black Mana and actually made me question if I was doing the right thing by reading Aquaman. I have a soft spot for him now, but he looks like a stingray is sleeping on his head. <laughs> the Floronic Man kind of freaked me out because I first encountered him in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and Forever. And the Forever people are the superhero equivalent of the Dave Matthews <laughs> I'm sure they're nice people, but they just plain bore me. I know nothing about the Forgotten Heroes, but the fact that the Immortal Man is at least remembered <laughs> is the least remembered is the Alanis Morissette level of ironic. <laughs> uh, heard from Martin Gray, who pointed out the fact that I keep saying Phantom Lady instead of Phantom Girl as the, the, the sexiest Legionnaire, so I apologize for that. Yes, in fact, it has been scientifically proven, and uh, they've been worldwide surveys about the hottest legionnaire in fact phantom girl has won that um and has been awarded that not uh, honor and i keep saying phantom lady who i apologize but she's also sexy worth mentioning so uh, mike gillis let us know that he wants his own flying fiddle car the fantastic car <laughs> he turned that uh, listing into his facebook avatar for a while that really made me very happy just just a little yeah, just the car yeah the car. <laughs> he says yeah i will commit all sorts of fiddle rate i can't say it i'm laughing i will commit all sorts of fiddle related crimes if i can have that vehicle <laughs> um well let's you know i do want to say we heard from a lot of folks that aren't i'm not getting getting a chance to name check here uh we we get a lot of comments on facebook we get a lot of comments on twitter please keep those comments coming we sincerely appreciate those. Uh, as I said, if we do an extended listener feedback segment next time, maybe because someone said we could do an eight-hour podcast and that gives me justification to do it, uh, we will say hi to everybody if we can. But, again, who's who? Um, so, yes, please please give us shout-outs on Twitter, Facebook, uh, you know, Tumblr. It, just, it helps to raise the profile of the show. We love these books. We want other people to get involved. We want to hear y'all's memories. Uh, and, uh, again, head over to our Tumblr. What's that Tumblr site, Rob? fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com Yep, and we'll have about 10 entries from this book out there. You can email us at firewaterpodcast at comcast.net Please visit our sites, Aquaman Shrine at AquamanShrine.com, Firestorm Fan at FirestormFan.com. You can find both of us on Facebook. You can find both of us on Twitter. You can also find Firestorm Fan on Tumblr uh, and um, Google Plus, shockingly. So, until next time, folks, thanks for listening. Yeah, we have to work on it. We don't have an exit phrase for who's who yet. We have the fan the flame and ride the wave, but we don't have a who's who thing yet.
Go read Who's Who. What's that? Go read Who's Who. Exactly. Start your pre-reading for episode number 10, folks. Hawkman! (laughs) Good night, guys. Bye. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Well, what do you want me to do about it, Colonel? File charges. I don't want him sharing my house arrest. You're innocent, Doctor.